Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, November 29th. We are here live. We're going to open phone lines right now. It is the Power Hour. We've got the team from Pittsburgh Power here with us. Also, we have Jane Gates from Max Mileage. So we've got a lot going on this morning. I'm going to bring the team in here in just a minute. Um, I think I'm going to let them take over here for a little bit. I've had kind of a crazy morning. Uh, I'll take a couple minutes for a public service announcement. For anybody making hot honey, it can build up pressure. I just found that out the hard way. So I've probably got like six different recipes going on right now. Half of them have been fermented, and then I put them in what they call Grolsch bottles. If you've ever seen those beer bottles that have the the ceramic top and the wire cage, and it closes and seals, I've been sealing my honey in those bottles. I had three of them in there that I've been drinking out of each day, and none of the ferments have been very active. So I've just been sealing the bottle, and when I open it, I don't notice any pressure at all. Till I opened one this morning in a very crowded pantry with a lot of stuff, and the entire pint of hot honey, when I flipped the lid, exploded out of the bottle. It is everywhere. It's on walls, it's on refrigerators, it's on cooking equipment, it's on the floor, it's on a microwave, a dehydrator. (laughs) It is an absolute mess. And it's honey, hot honey, and it's sticky. So I spent the last uh, 40 minutes, instead of recording my commentary this morning, trying to get the worst of it cleaned up. And then on top of that, I have a construction crew in the next room working on a project. So if you notice a lot of background noise, that's probably me today. I'll try to keep an eye on that. Uh, So with all that said, so if you are fermenting hot honey, just be careful. Don't put it in a sealed container. Make sure it can vent or that you are opening it and burping it at least once a day. I don't know what's different about this one. None of my other ferments with honey have built up any pressure at all. They're, they're just not very active ferments. I don't know what was different about this one. I have to go back and look through the recipe and see what may have caused this. So with that, I'm going to bring the team in. Bruce, you're up first. Good morning. Uh, it beeped. Are you talking to me, Kevin? I am. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can. Okay. Well, good morning. And uh, I did a similar thing that what you did with the honey. I was young, and I was at a farmer's house, and they had homemade root beer, and they handed it to me to take the cap off, and I shook it. <laughs> and when I took the cap off, it emptied under the 12-foot high ceilings, That's what completely this, covering the kitchen. That's what this honey did. And I felt so bad. Yeah. I was, and I was inside a pantry with stuff everywhere. So I have got to literally just empty the whole pantry out and clean everything. Mm-hmm. So the trucks, I have some good news. Cummins eight months ago purchased Meritor. And I was speaking with one of the Eaton engineers about the endurance, endurance transmission 
It's a 12-speed automatic. does have a clutch disc. He said it's super smart, so it uh, has a tremendous amount of sensors. It talks to the engine. And a fellow by the name of Randy Shell called me, and he has one. And he has 279 gears, so in a Peter in a Peterbilt. So it looks like Cummins, with the addition of Eaton and Meritor, are starting to think like we are. Gear them to run in direct gear. He's getting ready to order another truck, and I'm going to try to talk Packar into doing the uh, Eaton 12-speed. They said they would rather do the 11th speed because 11th gear is the one-to-one, 12th gear is point. Seven seven, I think it is. Let me look at my notes here. Yeah, point seven seven. So it's a single over transmission. First gear is fourteen point four three. They do have a crawler transmission, but they like to have it basically for dump truck cement mixer operations. So anyway, with eleventh gear on the endurant transmission, you're at one to one. And you can lock it into one to one. So the engineer I spoke with said, Well, why don't we just sell it as a direct transmission? We just lock it out of 12. I said, No, but that's smart. Let's let it go into 12th gear in case we're going down a slight grade and we don't need any power, then it can go into 12th gear. But the majority of the time, it'll stay in 11th. And uh, that's my project for this week is to get a hold of Cummins and uh, Meritor and talk to them about uh, specking this one truck for this gentleman with the 228s. Got it. So now the one thing we've got to watch out. Now, which engine is this? Is this an ISX? Uh, or an X-15? X-15. X-15 500. So we do have to be careful the, uh, not to take that engine down too low. Well, and they're telling, they're saying uh, right now he runs at eleven hundred and fifty RPM. And do they want to go lower than that? Are they okay going lower? No. Okay. No, okay. No, yeah, no, that's not a bad number. Fine. Okay, the two twenty eight. So we're doing eleven fifty at sixty two mile an hour with two twenty eight. Or is that the one with the no, with two two seventy nine in a point seven seven overdrive? Okay, so, so what I want to do is get it into out of twelfth gear into eleventh gear at that RPM and keep the R, keep the RPM the same. Okay, that makes sense. Now, so you're not. We do if we're going to go down that low. We at the two seventy nines. We don't really have to worry much about a crawler gear. I mean, it'd be nice to have them, but it's not necessary. Right. You can get by. You get down to 228s, we're going to have to make sure that low is and reverse are low enough. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. 14.43 in first gear. So What's reverse? We'll see. I didn't ask him okay. that. So yeah. I do have his cell phone, and I'll get back to him. Yeah, we'll, to work on we'll run first. some startability uh, calculations with that. You know, the interesting thing, mm-hmm. um, unless I'm missing somebody, it seems like Cummins and Peckar may be the only kind of modular, non-proprietary system left. You've got Peckar building the truck, Cummins building the engine, and did you say it was the Eaton or the Meritor transmission? No. 
No, Meritor. 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 It's Dana. It's Dana Rears, Dana and Meritor. Dana That's so and confusing. Eaton separated several years <laughs> I ago. I can't, I can't keep all those straight. Meritor was the, the nightmare transmission I had because they brought it over here for a couple of years. And then, if I remember right, Eaton sued them over some kind of technology they said they stole. And Eaton stopped selling the or Meritor stopped selling that transmission over here, and nobody serviced it. I had an absolute nightmare. Spent almost twenty thousand dollars trying to get that fixed, and never really did fix it. At a, was it an air shift four by four? No, it was the. Uh, it was just um, Meritor's first attempt at an auto shift over here. It was a two pedal, you know, true auto shift, and it just, it was. It was just an electronics problem, and it was very intermittent. Every now and then, the truck would just lock into usually top gear because it would happen when the driver was going down the highway. And no matter what you did, you couldn't get it out of that gear. And it just kept going mm-hmm. back to the shop and, you know, $10,000 worth the first time. Yeah. And when you'd get it out, you might not know for two weeks if it was fixed or not. It was that intermittent. And then a couple weeks later, it happened again, and then the the dealer said they had another fifteen thousand into it that they hadn't even charged me for, and I, I just we just never got that one fixed. But it, there was no support because they weren't selling that transmission here anymore, so nobody knew anything about it. Nobody wanted to work mm-hmm. on it. So, well, Meritor is the spinoff from Rockwell. Yeah, it was the Rockwell rears we used back in the seventies and eighties in vocational work. Okay. And then they, they decided to split the division and made it Meritor. But the beauty now of Cummins owning Meritor is like when Cummins bought Holset. Now you have all the engineers in one office. Well yeah, if, now, if they Cummins all still have their separate offices. But when when Cummins bought Holset, and they brought Holset into the general office building in Columbus. Now the engine engineers and the turbocharger engineers could work hand-in-hand, and it's been a fantastic marriage, and I'm looking for the same now out of the Meritor deal. Yeah, and and that actually, you know, when I said it wasn't proprietary, now it is. I mean, if they own the company, the two companies will work together. It will become proprietary. You know, the only thing left, really— is for Packard to buy Cummins. Now, Cummins is the largest producer of diesel engines. Yeah, they're big. Well, maybe Cummins <laughs> should buy Packard then. One or the other. <laughs> uh, we don't have to worry about that. So. Yeah, all right. Okay. What else you got? That well, sounds I'm excited like to have Dr. Jane Gates on. I mean, we, how often do we get uh, somebody with the qualifications of uh, exactly. a doctor in chemistry? To talk with us. All right. And if she if she does use terminology that we don't understand, like if she's talking to another uh, doctorate in chemistry, uh, you and I wouldn't understand what they were talking about. So if she does say something and we don't quite understand it, she can put it into our terms. Good. We we will need that because I uh, basically slept through chemistry class in high school, so I'm pretty lost when it comes to that. <laughs> hey, this has been a crazy morning. I've got I had the hot honey explosion. 
I've got a construction crew in the next room, and I swear somebody's casing my house right now. I'm thinking when Lisa left this morning, she left the garage open. I've got a truck out in front that, I swear to God, it looks like they're about to run into the garage and steal something. Go on down. I may have to. Um, Hey, Bruce, I'm going to bring Pete and Ethan in right now. And you guys go ahead and, you know what? I'll bring Pete, Ethan, and Jane. Yeah, I'm sorry, Leroy. And Jane in. They're all on. You guys talk. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay, so what I wanted to mention was that uh, a couple of things. One, we now have pouring spouts that will fit on the catalyst bottle. So it's going to be a lot more convenient to measure out uh, the catalyst. You still need uh, the little measuring cup or the 16-ounce bottle, but you will no longer need a, a funnel. So we have them in stock. They're on our website. Um, and I, I, they're five bucks a piece, so they're pretty affordable. They will also fit antifreeze jugs and gallon oil containers. So if you need to put antifreeze in a truck instead of getting a funnel, you'd screw that on. So five bucks a piece, you know, get a couple of them for catalyst, for antifreeze, for oil, um, make things a lot easier. Would, would fit on a half-gallon bottles also? It will fit on our, on our half-gallon gallon bottles, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. That's good. And then I was going to mention about um, the Euro 7, which doesn't really apply to trucks. It, it's automotive, but it generally goes from one place to another. And they're trying to improve emissions. But what got me in the article is that they're actually going to look at emissions for electronic vehicles. So you're thinking, well, what the hell could that be? And what they're trying to cut back is particles emitted by brakes and tires. This is how far they're getting. So you're talking about an electric vehicle. Yes. So if you have an electric car, they still have emissions to deal with. Now, of course, it's not tailpipe. But Euro 7, which will eventually come to the U.S. and then eventually to the truck lines, they have to cut brake dust dust by 27%. Wow. And tire particles by a number that they have yet to decide. And you said the reason was because they're they're heavier, right? And they're going to emit more brake dust. Right. I guess they're just worried that it is going to get out of control, which seems ridiculous that we're down to the point where worried about brake dust as particulate matter for sure so it it just shows how crazy so i I am back um false alarm it was two more people for the construction crew so they only looked like they were casing the place so are we am i hearing this right there's some new emission standards coming in europe right now for brake dust and rubber debris euro seven you know they're trying to improve the emissions on Automobiles, and they're also said that that's coming down the pike is uh, emissions for electronic vehicles, and it's not tailpipe emissions; it's on tires and brake dust. I mean, it just shows how insane things are getting. That is that I mean, job is security insane. Yeah, it really is. Not to mention the fact that the electric vehicles, the way things stand right now, are not going to clean up anything. 
Well, right. Yeah. I mean, that is, we, we know that um, even there was another article that at a truck stop, if they put in charging units, they will need enough electricity that would power a small town. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Which, again, where's that? I talked about this a couple of weeks ago at that conference that I was at. I wish I would have taken better notes. I was worried about my own presentation. But Schneider was building a terminal somewhere, and they submitted their plans. This was a, a medium-sized city. I mean, it's a city everybody would recognize the name of, not, not a big city. And I think it was in New Jersey somewhere. You would recognize the city, pretty good size. And they wanted 50 charging stations for trucks. Now, 50 charging stations for a company Schneider size is not that big of a deal. I mean, 50 trucks, come on, they have thousands and thousands of trucks. But at this terminal, they wanted 50 charging stations. When they submitted the plans, the city said those 50 charging stations would more than double our output right now. Our entire city doesn't use as much as those 50 charging stations are going to use. Like a nuclear reactor in the uh, yeah, basement of the. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, they they said those, and this is a little harder to to. It doesn't sound quite as bad, but they said that that would take more energy those fifty stations than the entire Empire State Building to run. Well, yeah, that's even hard to fathom. It is. It's it's I, when you think about that, you think well. Why are we even moving towards electric cars right now or trucks or any of it till we figure out the power situation? Eighty some percent of the charging for electric vehicles coming from coal fired power plants right now. The only advantage it's probably to easier that, to Yeah, your your pollution is at least in one place. So, you know, you can man, they are loud. Holy cow. Can you guys hear that? Uh, just very little. It's okay. not. It's not bothering. Yeah, I have my mics turned down as low as I can go. Um, they're just right in the next yeah, room. It's, it's okay, Kevin. All right. Yeah. So, you know, at least you contain the pollution in one place, but it doesn't seem like this is. Uh, and I'm I'm the one that loves electric stuff. I think electric vehicles are going to be amazing, but only if we can charge them. That'd be a better solution. Yeah, sure seems yeah, like just, it. That's just the way the problem is to figure out how to make an electric vehicle. To make one is easy, but then to get one for everybody and then charge it is a much bigger problem. And then we've got but, to deal with the batteries and where we're getting the material yeah, from. And- but bigger than we even thought, too. I mean, I, I think that's what we're really starting. Like, we always heard, well, the grid isn't, you know, up to par. Well, okay, let's make it up to par. But when you start to hear these numbers, you think, how can we? Where are we going to get that much power from? It feels like we're getting the cart a little bit ahead of the horse. Yeah, it does. We're producing all these yeah. vehicles we don't have power for. So did someone say, hey, let's do electric vehicles, and then someone say, well, let's look into this, this, and this? Or did they and say, no, to hell with it. I don't care. Let's just do it. Or did just no one think ahead? Well, here's what I think is happening. I think that electric vehicles were going to happen. I think it is a better technology moving forward in a lot of ways. And if we would have let the free market figure it out, I think we'd be fine. You know, they can't sell enough. They can't sell a lot of electric vehicles if people are having trouble charging them. 
So people will stop buying them if every time you get to a charging station, they're all backed up and you sit there for a couple hours. Nobody's going to keep buying these vehicles if that happens. But the government got involved and they're given all kinds of tax credits and they're pushing this hard, almost forcing it. California has already put um, limits on that. Uh, starting pretty soon, California will be limited on how many internal combustion engines they can sell. They have to sell a certain percentage of electric vehicles. Well, California may have one of the worst grids in the country based on what we've been hearing. But that, that's what they're pushing. They're pushing this green agenda so hard that there's no common sense being used at all. I don't think it's an accident. Yeah, not at all. When, you think, when you think of what the environmentalists have done to our country, it's awful. They've stopped a lot of logging. They've stopped. They want to eliminate hydroelectric. They want to tear down dams. I mean, that's, that to me is the best electricity there is. I, it's water going through a turbine. And it makes a resort. It makes people, it gives people waterfront living and they pay high taxes. It's a, that's a win-win situation, but yet the environmentalists don't want it. The environmentalists don't want nuclear power. And if you uh, talk to a nuclear engineer, they'll tell you how safe it is. I, so, absolutely. You, nuclear you needs to ignore these environmentalists. Nuclear needs to be brought back into the mix. When you were here, Bruce, did I take you down to the dam? Didn't we go down there when you were here? Yes, we did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There, that, that supplies mm -hmm. our tiny little town of a thousand people has its own power company. We get our electricity right yes. from that dam and our own little town when I was on city council, we had to manage that. We have mm -hmm. an electric crew. We service all of our own lines. We bill everybody from, from that dam to here. A tiny little town has its own power. What, and there really isn't any huge environmental impact. We have this river is the largest salmon run in the world on a single river. The Columbia River right in front of me, it's the largest salmon run in the world. Still is. They built fish ladders. The, the salmon come through there every day. We watched them come through the window, yeah. remember? Yeah. yeah, stood there and watched them. Yeah. So you could I, look eye to eye at them. <laughs> they're right there. Thousands of them every day. Tens of thousands come through there. Hundreds of thousands a year. So I, I just don't Why see don't you the explain problem. explain how fish ladder works? Yeah, the crazy thing is that, so salmon, wild Western Pacific salmon, are, they're born somewhere in these rivers or streams around here. It might be a little tiny stream coming into the river. As they start to grow, they head out to the ocean and they live out in the ocean for roughly about five years. And then they come back to the exact place they were born. We still don't know how they do that. They will go back to that exact tiny little spot in the river and they will spawn and die. And then the next generation heads out. That's how it works. So, yes, if you build dams, you have a problem. Those fish can't get back and they will just die without spawning. You would wipe out the salmon population in a couple of years, except they, they understood that. So they built a fish ladder. So when the fish start to come to the dam, they all end up over in this one part where it gradually makes its way up. You know, you'd see salmon jumping up the rocks coming upstream. 
That's all they do here. Mm -hmm. They just built a nice gradual incline that the fish can jump up and then they go under the water past the dam. And that's where we were down there. Not only do they do that so all the fish can get by, there's somebody down there. It's a full-time job. They have to count the fish one at a time. And it's hundreds of thousands of Mm -hmm. a year, but that's, that's how close they monitor that. It was fish after fish. Yeah. Yeah, so, and that's how they determine, we don't have like a regular season of fishing. We, the, the season gets opened and closed constantly based on that fish count. If the fish count's too low, then they close it for a while. And if we have plenty of fish, they open the season back up and people go out and fish. And they're doing a hell of a job managing all that. I don't see where the dam has caused any real problem. How do they stop the grizzly bears by catching them then? The, we don't have that problem here because the river's too big and too deep. You know, the, the bears, okay. yeah, they'll probably somewhere, you know, up in the tributaries and the streams, we have bears fishing the salmon out. And that's, you know, now what we do have, which is bizarre, we have seals that come all the way from the ocean, all the way in, and we're... What? we got to be a hundred and some miles in from the ocean here because that's like the furthest point out where the Columbia empties. So we're, we're probably a hundred miles. The seals will sit right there where all the fish have to enter into the fish ladder, and it's like a giant buffet for them. The fish and wildlife, you'll see them running around in a raft, and they'll, they'll blow off blanks. They'll shoot blanks, and it usually scares them away. If it doesn't, if they start to get aggressive enough, they have a limit. They're allowed to kill so many of them every year, and they do. They have to kill some because they eat so many fish. Wow. Yeah, kind of crazy. So how do we get off on seals and salmon here? I I just asked you to talk about the ladder because I thought the ladder was unique. It is. I like that. I enjoyed saying that. Yeah. All right, so let's... um, so, Bruce, we've heard from you. Pete, hey, we were in the middle of yours. Real quick. Yeah, so real quick. So I'm pretty much done, other than your hot honey, that um, <laughs> should you not put a airlock on them? So if sh- anything's fermenting, it generally... I CO2. should, you're right. And I ferment everything, so, and I always have airlocks on them. And on my big, I have three-gallon fermenters for the honey. I have like five of those, so I can do five batches at once, three gallons each. These are big batches I'm, I'm working with. They have airlocks on them. What I was finding, though, is once I would take the peppers or whatever I was fermenting or infusing out of the honey, and then I would put it in a bottle or a jar, and I watched it. I've been doing this for a couple months now. Uh, I would watch it, and once I took everything out, it wasn't active anymore. It wasn't actively fermenting and creating pressure. So I started putting them in these Grolsch bottles because it's really convenient. You know, they're, they close nice and you pour out of them really nice. And I've got five or six of them that have been in there for a couple weeks. They're in a room temperature. You don't refrigerate this. And they've all been sealed. And I open one up every morning and I take a shot and I went to open one this morning. The only thing different I noticed about this, you know how honey will crystallize after a while? Real honey that isn't pasteurized. Mm -hmm. This started to crystallize a little bit at the top, and none of the others have done that either. 
So I picked it up this morning and I'm looking at it and I thought, well, that's weird. It's crystallizing. And as I was thinking that, I flipped the top. It sounded like an M80 went off. It was so loud and the entire content, 16 ounces of that bottle just shot everywhere. I, I don't know why that one is creating pressure and none of the others are. So there are still some fermentables in there that it kept Must fermenting. Must have been, yeah. Um, I wonder if you, could you keep that temperature a little cooler in there to keep fermentation down? Maybe it's a bit warm in there. It, it is. It's probably about 70 degrees in there, so things will ferment pretty well at 70. Um, I guess what I'm learning is that I think you're exactly right. There was something left in that batch for some reason that was still fermentable. And in the other batches, we must have fermented everything out. Yeah. So I learned I won't keep them sealed like that anymore. Those air boxes are inexpensive. Most beer supply places sell them. I've got tons of them. I have water. Yeah. For quart jars, I have probably 10 different styles of venting lids for fermenting. And I've got a ton of airlocks around it. You know, I, I won't really be able to use these Grolsch bottles until I figure this issue out. But it was, a, it was just kind of a great way to store them and use it. And it pours well. And so I'll figure it out. It's part of the process, I guess. Kevin, we have a kitchen available for you at the Line Shack Lodge in Dubois, Wyoming, March 1st through the 4th as the owner-operator snowmobile conference. And I have permission for you to come and cook us healthy meals. Really? That would be fun. I would actually enjoy that. Yeah. That would be fun. Okay. We'll have We're going to gonna see. pursue I, it. I, well, I... I plan on being in Florida on March 1st. We'll see. And you're going to have to change that. <laughs> that back a week. We'll see. Yeah, I plan on leaving here sometime around the second week in January, taking off on the coach and not coming back until after Louisville. I was going to head south down to San Diego okay. and then work my way across the across 10 and take my time and, you know, spend some time in New Mexico and Arizona and then head to Florida. We've got some family down there and a couple employees and we thought we'd hang out in Florida for a while till it was time to go up to Louisville and then head back home. We'll see. Maybe I'll just fly out of there and come back. All right. That's right. Leroy. Okay. It's your turn. So uh, if we have some time, I wanted to talk about Jake Brakes as the tribe member Bradley Boardman suggested we talk about. I think that was a great idea. We have a lot going on today, but that's still a really good topic. This is part of our Back to the Basics series. I love this one, where we take a system or a part or something and we describe it from start to finish as though you knew nothing about it. So today we're going to explain how a Jake break works. So, Leroy, why don't you start us off? So, yeah, I mean, anybody can jump in at any time. So the the basic idea behind it is during the compression stroke, you're usually tip, you're compressing air to make it hot enough for the diesel fuel to light, right? That's during normal operation. Now, under jaking, you're compressing that air, but just as the piston almost reaches the top dead center, you open 
the exhaust valve, which releases that compressed air into the exhaust manifold and then out, right? So when you do it that way, you're putting work into compressing that air, but you're not getting any sort of motion out of it. So by what I mean by putting work into it is the engine has to use energy to compress that air, which slows the vehicle down and it gets nothing for it. That's sort of the basic of how it works. So um, when I when I first started thinking about how a Jake brake worked, I almost had it backwards. For some reason, in my mind, it felt like if we kept the compression in the engine, that it would have created more drag. But then when I when I you know, read about how it all worked, then it made sense. If we leave that compression in there, even without a spark or an explosion, it pushes the piston back down hard. That's what continues to drive the vehicle, even though we're not burning any fuel. But if you open that exhaust valve and let that pressure out, now you're actually slowing the vehicle down because like you said, that, that energy now is being expelled out. We just turned the engine into a giant air, air pump is, is what we've done so that we're bleeding right. off that pressure so the piston isn't forced back down as hard. I mean, it's still moving and turning, but it's not being forced back down by that compressed air. Right. So that's sort of the, the basic version of it. And when the, the guy was like, this is just sort of a trivial thing to talk about i have really a book not. that uh it's, it's the book is called like diesel engine system design it's basically a group of papers put together if you were building a diesel engine from scratch the engine retarder section is 75 pages long wow and it is dense <laughs> with graph all sorts of things it is not a trivial thing there's well, here's- a lot of uh yeah, and here's something else right. we should probably throw in. When we say Jake brake, that term came from the Jacobs Manufacturing Company that manufactured that particular piece. It wasn't the engine manufacturers that built that. They went to a component manufacturer, Jacobs. They built the, the engine brake. We just started calling it a Jake brake. And... Any engine that had a true Jake brake, they were basically the same. They were just put on different engines. Now, some manufacturers actually came right. up with other engine retarders. Like I had a Mercedes that had an exhaust brake. Uh, it, instead of it wasn't right. on the engine itself, it was part of the exhaust. Um, not nearly as powerful. Wasn't even close. Actually, it was almost worthless. Um, but th- that's where the term Jake. So sometimes we say Jake brake, and that's not actually true. It may be some other system that's right. on there that works similar. And and fun fact, you know who had the idea for the Jake brake? No, or engine brake. Rudolph D's Classy Cummins, Papa Cummins. Oh, Papa Cummins. Well, Classy. no. Maybe that's why it works so well on the Cummins engine. Right. Well, no. But <laughs> <laughs> so can yeah, you explain also, to uh, us why it works think, better on a Cummins? Well, so there's multiple reasons. One is, well, a lot of manufacturers do this now. Um, most everyone uses a double lobe on the camshaft for the rocker, for the Jake rocker. 
So what that means is you have an exhaust valve opening near top dead center on the compression stroke, right? And then you have um, another exhaust valve opening near the bottom of the intake stroke. So what that means is the intake is uh, during the intake stroke, the piston is almost at bottom dead center, right? Okay. The exhaust valve opens and there's another piston that is driving its compressed air in the exhaust manifold. So you have a lot of pressure in the exhaust manifold. And when you open that during the intake stroke, you can shove more compressed air into that cylinder. So when it has to come back up during a day oh. cycle, you have even more, more drag, even harder to compress. Got it. Right. Okay. So one of the big things that the engine brake effect of is one cylinder pressure, right? So the more cylinder pressure you have, the harder the jake is. I mean, I think I read the ISX can have like 600 horsepower worth of uh, jaking capability at like 2300 RPM. Wow. Typically, you see like four or 500 right. in the operating range, but you can have up to 600. Wow. So. Not only do you have the double lobe that forces more air in, you also have a VGT turbo, which you can close off during jaking to make even more exhaust pressure. And when you close off um, to make more back pressure, what does that do? That makes the turbo speed up. The, more the, the, the faster the turbo is spinning, the more boost that you make, which is more air that you cram in there. And it's just this sort of chain reaction cycle that just keeps and building. This sort of explains why when some people take VTT turbos off and put big, you know, big exhaust housing turbos on, the jake sucks so bad. Because, for one, sense. you lost all of that back pressure. That yeah. You have. Same thing if you didn't have a VTT turbo and you put a larger, you put one of these massive turbos on with See, a big exhaust housing. Again, you just lost exhaust back pressure. Okay, so this isn't trivial, because I just learned several things about the Jake I didn't know. I didn't know we were opening on the intake on some cylinders. That's new, but it makes sense. But here's where I think I got confused. We keep talking about making more back pressure to make the Jake more effective. That's what right. it seemed to me like we were trying to hold that in the engine, but we're not. We're creating it and then releasing it, right? And that's where the drag comes from. You're... Yeah, you're trying to make it harder for that to compress, right? Yeah. So the more air that's in there, the more energy it's going to take to compress that. Got it. So you now can that do that through sense. back, but you have to do it at the turbo, not after the turbo. That's an exhaust brake, right? right. So okay. That does make exhaust back pressure, but it also slows the turbo down. Right, because their air has to flow through the turbine to spin the turbo. Right. Now, if you put an exhaust brake that's slowing the turbo down, it makes less move, and it overall just reduces your jaking capability. So this would be a good time to talk about something else that has confused a lot of people over the years, because we've always correlated boost pressure with fuel consumption. And we've always said the higher your boost, the more fuel you're consuming. And we should always follow that statement with there's an exception to that. And that is when you are making boost because the jake is activated. Because, correct me if I'm wrong on this, there is no fuel being released when the jake is activated, correct? None. There is no fuel, correct. Okay. But we have boost. 
but that boost is just right. being created because of the forward motion of the vehicle. All those components are still turning. We're creating that pressure and then releasing it. That's where the drag comes from. But a lot of people were confused. They thought that when they used their brake or their Jake brake, they were consuming more fuel. Yeah, no, I mean, you have, you have compressed air, which is a lot of pressure. And then when you compress air, you make more temperature. So a lot of pressure and temperature is going to be the energy that activates the turbo and makes it spool. The harder you make it spool, the more boost you're going to make during shaking. Got it. That makes sense. So, so this isn't trivial or simple. Yeah, There's actually a lot going on here, and most people really don't understand how it works. I mean, and there's even design considerations for, here's one that may not be something you think about, but they think about when they're putting the engine together, they're designing from scratch. You're having cylinder pressures that are almost the same as uh, normal operating, like when the injector is actually firing, right? And when you have cylinder pressures like that, you also have temperature. So what the issue can be is under long periods of jaking, the injector tip doesn't have any fuel flow through it because it's not actually firing. And that injector tip can actually overheat if the metal used isn't selected correctly. So you have an issue where if you don't design your tip correctly, you design it too thin, you don't use the right metal, you can actually essentially almost burn the tip off during jaking. So there's a lot that goes into it. There is. Basically, I guess the takeaway... um, the more cylinder pressure you can have during a jaking event, the stronger your jakes are going to be. And you think about like what can go wrong. I guess that's the other section that the guy was saying. Like from a diagnostic standpoint, you can have um, on the older dual cam ISX engines. The issue that they had was they ran a lot of EGR, and all that soot built up in the oil, and the cross drillings in those rocker shafts were used to depress the detents, which would make the the rocker shafts actually work for the Jake. So if those cross drillings got plugged with, you know, soot packed oil, then the Jake's wouldn't engage. So that was one issue. You have oil flowing through solenoids. Um, those solenoids can leak over time. The O-rings can go bad. Um, any sort of things like that can make Jake's feel bad or like not as powerful. So, um, you've seen a lot of that so, piece, right? Yeah, so Jake's actually wear out as well. So there's rebuild kits for them. And, and you have a slate piston, a master piston, and there's O-rings. And basically, it's working off of hydraulic pressure. So you get oil coming from the engine. Um, you turn the Jake on, the solenoid opens up, goes through the Jake brake. The master piston makes the hydraulic pressure the slave piston, which holds the the valve open. Uh, Because it's hydraulic, it's tight tolerances. Uh, If someone's running dirty oil for a a length of time, you lose those tolerances, and the housings just wear out. And we see a lot of that on the 60 series, especially in gliders. They were running out of good engines to buy. They were throwing in anything they could find, and these shakes had you know, 2 million miles on them and simply were out yeah. and they, they didn't work very well. And the fix was simply to replace them. Got it. So let's talk about something else. The, 
Jake brake is more effective the higher the RPM, correct? Correct. And you talked about all the way up to 2300 on what the ISX or the X15 yes. where we could create up to 600. Did they call that brake horsepower? Um yeah, they they had a term for it. I can't I know. remember it. And I I can't when remember. I think of brake horsepower, I guess that's what comes to mind because we're talking about a Jake brake. So is there, right? you know, we used to run our engines up at that high, you know, 2000 RPM, 2200 on the mechanical engines. We never even thought twice about that. Um, we don't get anywhere near those kind of numbers when we're operating the engine. Is there any danger to any modern engine to letting the Jake take the RPM up that high? Nothing I know of. Um, I mean, I don't know if I would want to consistently Jake at 2,300 RPM. It's but, a lot of power. Um, if, if, you've, if you've done that with the ISX or an X15, it is, it, it's almost like you've got the brakes on. There's so much braking power at that RPM. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to sure. do that. You, you don't so, want to be that high. Yeah, so what, what would be relatively safe, staying under 2,000? Sixteen to Now we're kind of all over the board. Yeah. We're at yeah. sixteen to twenty-one. I mean, that was something. You know, the like on, on the older NTCs. You know, years ago, thirty years ago, we would see them push rods all the time, and that was because it was a company truck. You know, geared to gear bound, just because of their rear end ratio. So they would go down the hill in neutral. And the truck would be flying, and they would uh, throw it in gear, and the RPMs would go super high, and valves, or the jaking. They would uh, throw the jake on once they got too fast. Instead of keeping it on, say, low and keeping the speed down, they waited till it got ahead of them, and they would bend push rods. And that's something we haven't seen in, in 30 years. I mean, just you just yeah. don't see that anymore. Yeah, I've never heard of anybody having issues from jaking too high. I've yeah. seen people modify programs to tighten up the VGT more on an ISX. That causes problems. But okay. I think that's because you're, you're probably already skirting the line of a lot of back pressure right. on all the components and the heat and the engine and stuff like that. Um, I don't think that, I mean, they're already closing at like 80, 90%. So I, they're only going up a few percent. So that tells me that Cummins is already on sort of the it, knife's edge of. Yeah. You don't want to mess with that probably. Jake. Yeah. The rule of thumb we used to have on the older Jakes was not to go above 25 pounds of boost. Oh, okay. So if for some reason, keep in mind, um, the old Cummins had Cummins turbos on them. And then when Cummins bought Holset and they had Holset turbos, they were a lot more efficient. They also made more boost during Jake. So if you had an older Jake brake with a newer turbo, we had to change these auto lash screws, the adjustment screws in the Jakes to reduce that, um, which were expensive. The screws were expensive. You would disassemble the Jake. You had to throw and tap uh, for the larger screws. Expensive. Uh, one way to avoid it was three-way switch in the cab, you know, three, two, one. And as you're jaking, if boost goes up too high, you go from stage three to stage so, two, yeah, which would bring the boost. You know, again, you have to be aware of it, and you 
just couldn't have any driver do that. I and mean, generally, it was someone that owned his truck and didn't want to pay to repair it. They would pay attention to that. So, we always told guys, keep the boot at five pounds. Got what would happen if somebody didn't? Then push your odds. Oh, really? So with the, the C13 in my coach, and roughly I'm like 42,000 pounds typically when I'm going down the road without a trailer on it, there isn't a hill anywhere in the country that I have to use brakes on. I mean, I, I do just what you were describing, Pete. At the top of the hill, I may start off on the third stage of the Jake. And I just literally drive the truck down the hill with the Jake. I mean, it, it will start to slow down too much on stage three, and I'll drop down to stage two, let it coast out a little bit, maybe even stage one if it starts to level out some, and if it gets steeper again. I can go all the way down the hill, never touch the brake or anything else, just using the Jake brake. With that little bit of weight, there isn't a hill anywhere that'll let that thing roll away. And you, you, you probably shouldn't approach that hill if your Jake's, you know your Jake's aren't already working. <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> all right. Well, that was... That Somebody was... mentioned it. What's that? Somebody mentioned in the comments, like, what do you do if they, like, don't work? I'm just like, pray to your God. I don't well, know what else you do. You know... Stand on the brake. One of the things, if you drive a modern truck today with an auto shift and a Jake brake, it, you have no idea how hard it used to be coming down a hill with gear bound trucks and, you know, just uh, the Jake and, and not. When I started, we didn't even have front brakes. So coming down hills like that used to be really treacherous. You get in a modern truck today, most of these drivers have no idea how hard it was to come down some of those hills. They didn't have front brakes? No, none. What? It wasn't required. Now, years ago, we didn't have front brakes. Back in the 70s and early 80s, there right. were no front brakes. First couple of trucks I owned didn't have them. Back then, with the short gears, if you kept your truck in the proper gear, it wasn't a problem. Exactly. You, know, you couldn't hit but, the top of the hill. 70, I'm going to downshift and, you know, go over the hill slow. You were okay. Well, here's where, here's how you got in trouble. If you started that hill too fast and you let a gear get away from you, you couldn't get it into a lower gear. You just couldn't. The engine was going too fast to get it into that gear. And when your brakes started to fade, then you couldn't use the brakes to slow you down enough to get it into a lower gear. That's a runaway truck. That's why we have runaway ramps, because that used to be a fairly common thing. If you let that RPM get a little too high, it was impossible to get into a lower gear. Kevin, that's why when we build a big cam fuel pump, we give it 24 to 2,500 RPM. Not that you're going to drive there, but if you need to catch up down the hill yeah. at the end to get it down to the next lower gear, you can. Yeah, you had a little bit more room to let the engine catch up to the transmission so you could get that gear. Right. Yeah. All right. Boy, this is, uh, we've got good stuff, but we also, we also have a great resource with us that we haven't heard from today yet. So I'm going to bring in Jane Gates right now. Jane. Good morning and welcome back. Well, good morning, Kevin. Nice to hear your voice. 
Yeah, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me in. Yeah, we we love having you here with your expertise. We just had so much going on this morning. I want to make sure we we get you in here and and get you involved. We're gonna get a yeah. We're gonna get a chemistry lesson today. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Yeah, I slept through my fear of chemistry classes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't feel so bad then. No, right. no. So, so what's on uh, your mind this morning? Well, I've been um, getting, doing some back and forth over the last couple of weeks with the team at Pittsburgh Power, uh, Pete, mostly about engine oil reports, engine oil analysis reports that are showing a trend of... Um, higher oxidation and um, we these were extended oil drain intervals. So uh, we've been, we've been talking about that some, it'd be a fun uh, topic to explore further and, and combined with your, of course, your knowledge and expertise. But um, I did a little bit of research on some of the common causes of engine oil oxidation. And, and of course, let's take a little side trip down the road of why that's a bad thing uh, oxidation of the oil causes the properties of the oil to change, right? And so it becomes thicker, sludgier, uh, more contaminated, and uh, just really bad for the engine. Um, the acid formation starts to become an issue, and that builds up. And, of course, that can contribute to corrosion, which is loss of metal of those critical moving parts in the engine. So in general, um, engine oil oxidation is uh, is bad, and so you always want to be proactive in monitoring the condition of the oil, especially when there's an oil filter such as the OPS that uh, facilitates those extended oil drain intervals. But so let's cut to the chase. Um, I mean, but, but by all means, um, why don't you jump in with your own comments yeah. before I go any further? Yeah, let me let me jump in there because. What we would expect to see is as oxidation climbs, we would expect to see viscosity climb with it, and we would expect base to drop. We're using more of the base because we're creating more acidic conditions, so our base should drop, our viscosity should go up. That's really what we're watching for. The I For a long time, I was saying, look, your oil's oxidated, but it doesn't seem to be causing any problems. And I was watching viscosity wasn't changing at all. Base was holding up just fine. And we had three oil samples in a row on, on extended drains where the oil was oxidized. And what, what could cause that? Because I agree with you, you oxidize that oil, we should see it start to get thicker and we should see our base start to disappear faster than normal. But occasionally, and it's fairly common, I see oxidation go up, but the oil doesn't degrade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to find um, definitive trends that correlate with this with the theory yeah. in these oil analysis samples. I agree with you there. So they can be they can appear to be uh, a little bit um, you know difficult to correlate. Could but that yeah, be? so that's why it's just best to admit. Could it's that... best to know, in my opinion, it's the best. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, could that have anything to do with the additive package? Because everybody uses a different additive package. They're all over the board, lots of different things for different stuff. And is it possible that there's a, an additive combination or package that helps protect the oil against that? 
Oh, absolutely. And differences in formulation from one engine oil manufacturer to another, I'm sure, plays a, a role. And of course, that's you know that's an insider's game. We don't know what I know their formulas are and and how they stack up compared to the competitors. And um, so we don't have access to their uh, long-term testing of the chemistry and how it changes over time. You know, so we're kind of in the dark as to what is actually going on. So, you know, but yeah, that is the most reasonable explanation for why things seem to be, um, you know, why why the engine oil analysis reports uh, don't always clearly show those trends as predicted. But yeah. Just Um, as as an observation of, of reading oil samples for a couple decades now, the one oil that always mm-hmm. stands out, and maybe it's only because it's so common, I'm not sure, but the one oil that doesn't seem to degrade after it's been oxidized is Rotella. Okay. I just see that one yes, more often nice. hold up against oxidation where I, I'll be looking at somebody's oil samples. We're three samples in. We're seventy-five or 100,000 miles. It's been mm-hmm. oxidized that whole time sometimes even up as high as a level three, and yet viscosity doesn't change. Um, the base is still holding up just fine. So I'm just wondering if there's something in the Rotella formulation that protects against that. Sure, and I'll start looking for that too as I look at more and more of these reports. I'll see if the shell um, Rotella shows the, that particular trend of resistance to oil degradation, even though the oxidation number is getting flagged. Um, thanks for that. I, uh, but back to preventing oil oxidation and some of the causes, um, I pulled up a really good uh, article by an oil manufacturer. Uh, they had a great analogy. They said, well, you know, what is oxidation in the first place? It's a general type of chemical reaction. If you take a bite out of a fresh apple, right. leave it on your counter for an hour or two, it goes from white to brown. Well, that's the reaction of the sugars in the apple with oxygen in the air, and it's in the and it turns brown. Um, so that's an example, an easy um, analogy that ex- describes oxidation, which uh, I thought would be useful to share. Um, and then uh, let me, let's let me see. throw in something yeah, interesting right mm-hmm. there. Why? Mm-hmm. Why when we talk about the human body? Do we make such a big deal about antioxidants? Aren't we talking about the exact yes. same thing here? Yes, we are. We need oxygen We're to survive, oxygen. but oxygen is very right. destructive to our cells. In a reactive form, and those are the uh, free radicals that are formed yeah. when through the Re- oxidation reactions. React- yes. Reactive oxidation. Yeah. Oxygen species, ROS, I think, is a term we use in the body. Correct. Correct. Reactive oxygen species, yes. And so those those are supercharged atoms of oxygen that are going going around unhappy. They're they're in an excited state, and uh, so they carry an extra uh, electric charge, or they are missing uh, an electric charge. So they're trying to fulfill that gap. And uh, so they'll find something to react with, and that's what will cause the, the damage in our cell systems. So, so we need to consume yeah. antioxidants, which 
will balance that. They'll either add the charge or they will combine with that oxidizing component and neutralize it, which is exactly similar yep. to what we're, are referred to. we're doing in oil. We're trying to neutralize those problems. Yes, yes, yes. So those are generally referred to as a class of compounds called free radical scavengers. And that's the job of an antioxidant. And that's the type of additive that's probably present in those oils that are holding up well in spite of a high oxidation number, um, possibly. Just yeah. speculating. But yeah, could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So great, great uh, insight there. Um, yeah, friction. Hey, friction. This is one that really resonated with me. is a is a cause of engine oil oxidation, and so um, the reason I wanted to point that one out is any any customer is, that's also using the max mileage fuel borne catalyst, they're reducing friction by improving the combustion of their engine. So. Um, <laughs> That's kind of an, an additional benefit of being having your truck on the catalyst uh, is reducing friction, which in turn reduces uh, the rate of oxidation just by reducing heat. And so we know that the rule, the rule of thumb, the rule of thumb in chemistry, and I, know I heard this over and over and over again through through my, my academic life. Uh, generally speaking, every for every 15 degree Fahrenheit rise in temperature the reaction rate of any chemical reaction will more or less double. And so what do I find in the literature and, you know, in the uh, a simple search on the internet about this process of engine oil oxidation, I find that they're saying pretty much the same thing, Kevin. They're saying for every increase in temperature of 18 degrees Fahrenheit, the oxidation rate of your engine oil will double if you're already above 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So I know that was a mouthful. I'd be happy to repeat it if you'd like for me to. No, I, I think that makes total sense. And it also correlates with exactly what we've been watching since emissions came on board. As soon as we started adding emission mm-hmm. controls to these engines, we had to start running them mm-hmm. hotter and hotter. They ran hotter anyway. Mm-hmm. And part of that was by design. Um, we're able to burn off more of some of these contaminants at higher temperatures, but it was also much harder on the oil. And so much so, I, I was a, one of the oil companies hired me to travel around the country and at truck shows, I would talk about the new um, standards coming out in oil. And that was the first time we had ever had two standards. The new engines had changed so much in design that they were developing oils for the new engines, but they couldn't really make them backwards compatible anymore with the old engines. Up until that point, every time they came out with a new formulation, they were also able to keep it backwards compatible. I mean, you could all go all the way back to mechanical engines with those oils and they work just fine. Now that's not the case. These new oils are so radically different designed for these new engines that you do have to be careful using them in the older engines. You know, I remember when that change came down the pike, and and interestingly enough, I never correlated it to the introduction of the emissions controls 
systems, uh, and so that so, is that's the reason. Two two reasons actually. Uh, yeah, one was to handle the uh-huh. the higher heat and the new contaminants that were being created. The other was because mm-hmm. they're being pushed towards fuel mileage standards. That's why we went from a forty weight oil to a thirty weight oil, a lower viscosity, less drag. Correct. Right, right, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Great insight. Well, I just want to mention, you know, it's just kind of a subtle thing, but um, high temperatures don't necessarily cause oxidation. They just accelerate it, okay? So, um, but there are some things that people should be aware of that do cause uh, oxidation. And, um, of course, oxygen is one of them. <laughs> and you, so, you know, preventing oil oxidation, uh, it makes sense that you want to keep oxygen out of uh, your your system. And so uh, there are a couple of common sense things to consider there for, for keeping your engine um, vapor tight. Uh, keeping bearing seals tight was one thing that was mentioned. And, uh, you know, I know you guys on the mechanical side might want to weigh in on that. Um, a second is uh, keeping those other fittings that are in the oil circulation loop uh, also snug and tight to prevent air leaks is, were the two things that came up. So for further comments, please. I have nothing on so that. We don't, want, we don't want oxygen to get into the inside of the engine. So as okay. long as you're not leaking oil and your EGR system is working, then there shouldn't be a lot of oxygen in there. So here's one of the situations. Yeah. Here's one of the situations we see when a truck's been sitting a long time and the oil oxidizes just because of time in contact with oxygen. Mm -hmm. That's one of those cases where we see an oxidized oil, but it doesn't tend to change the the base oil itself. It's been oxidized, but it still looks completely serviceable. I just wonder if there are other symptoms that might go along with a leaking uh, bearing seal. Um, such as fuel dilution. I mean, I don't know. I'm just looking for other things that might go in the engine uh, oil analysis report that might indicate leaking seals and oxygen getting in and that correlate that do correlate with the oxidation level going up. Um, huh. Any thoughts there? I don't have any. Yeah, we, we don't. We don't really have a. The seals leaking. The seals are on the crankshaft and accessory drive uh-huh. shaft, cam okay. shaft. But uh, we really don't. I don't have... know how. Go ahead. Go ahead I was going to say the thought that I had was the you know the case is pressurized, so I mean it's going to be hard for things to get inside, yeah. like out, ambient temperature to get inside. So glad you brought that up. Yeah, glad you brought that up. Because keeping the, uh, they call it the the reservoir pressurized, it was definitely something that's uh, important to ma- uh, manage as well. I mean, for that very reason. So, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, yeah, that correlates with what I, that, that squares with what I'm reading, Leroy. So how do people monitor <laughs> the pressure in the crankcase? <laughs> well, on a newer engine, newer engine, the ECM does it. On the older ones, I mean, there's a hose that sticks down, and if it blows a lot, then it's bad. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it just bent into the atmosphere. Right. Um, 
<laughs> as you had oil consumption, you had more blow-by, which would indicate uh, the engine needing rebuilt. Um, but you could actually run a the older trucks with a lot of blow-by, and, and it just ran. So the newer trucks will throw a code and derail because obviously the EPA doesn't want that vented to the atmosphere. Weird. And does that happen when the crankcase pressure gets too hot? Oh. Or is it because you're you're losing um, the seal around the piston and rings? Or is it both? Right. That, so when you lose that it. seal, yeah. that's when you have that's what caused the blow by, yes. Mm-hmm. Or about to do the same thing. That, that's actually one of the tests we can perform to see if the pist- if the rings are worn or the cross hatch is worn on the cylinders, the higher the crankcase pressure starts to get, and we measure that with it's a manometer, Pete. Is that what that is? Yes. We measure that, and you can, yeah, you can kind of correlate that crankcase pressure to the condition of the rings. As they wear out more, that pressure is going to get high because more combustion gases are getting past the the rings. Ah, got it. What about going in the other direction? If the crankcase pressure gets too low and the system starts sucking in air, uh, what are the causes of that? Does that happen? No, that, that just won't happen. I was going to say I don't think yeah. that happens. Yeah. I don't think that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it fun having somebody ask naive yeah. questions? <laughs> it is actually. It makes you think about what you really know about this stuff. <laughs> when you think years ago in the race cars, we didn't have. Um, what was the little valve called when they first came out in the valve cover? PVC, right? PVC. We didn't have PVCs or anything like that. But the rule was, even if you had vehicles you weren't using, you changed the oil, mineral oil. Uh, We didn't have synthetic then. You changed it every six months because of the acid buildup. It would oxidize. The oil to the cast iron, but it wasn't. It wasn't actually the oil to the cast iron. It was the oil to the oxygen. Right. Right. So I, I think over the years, one of the huge improvements they've made in additive packages is the ability to deal with this oxidation. Right. And I think, you know, getting back to the oil analysis reports, um, keeping an eye on the viscosity is, to, in my mind, appears to be really important because, okay, keeping your viscosity in a normal range, if it gets too thin... Uh, then friction becomes an issue, which accelerates oxidation or causes it. Um, and so, you know, normal solutions to that problem are to make sure you're not getting fuel dilution, et cetera. But if it starts getting too thick, then that indicates that your oil is shot and you need to change it. <laughs> so, because there's been a breakdown in the, in the oil composition due to um, all of those things that contribute to oxidation, which leads to sludge formation and the viscosity goes up. So, you know, if it goes in either direction from the middle, um, those yeah. are causes for concern to take immediate action. You know, I had an oil sample yesterday. I just pulled it back up. I'm pretty sure this was yesterday I went over this one. Um, and this was an unusual pattern. Like I said, most oil, what oil did he have? He's got Chevron in this. 
uh, Chevron Dello. It's just a uh, 10W30. Doesn't look like it's it's a synthetic of any kind. The this engine, it's an X15. We do tend to see more oxidation in the Cummins. I, I think they have hot spots in that engine because I'll ask people, is it running hot now? It runs normal. There there must be hot spots. We get a lot of oxidation out of the Cummins, and this one has been pretty chronic. Um, and what yeah, the, lateral thrust. Yeah, and this one has a horrendous time trying to keep base in the oil. The base has been chronically low for over a year. And when you typically, when I see base dropping, I look at engine performance. Are we getting a complete burn? And typically, if we, you would see high fuel dilution because we're not burning the fuel completely, we would see high soot because we're not burning the fuel completely. And then we would see base drop. That's not the case in this engine. Virtually no fuel dilution. Soot is at 0.2%, extremely low, especially for an mm-hmm. X-15. Oxidation is, is flagged at a level three on this last one, 27. I forget how they measure oxidation, but the number's 27, and the base is down to 0.5. I mean, that's... At, at, we are about to see right next to the base number on an oil sample on a on a um, OPS a Polaris lab. Right next to it is an acid number. We almost ignore that because out of a hundred thousand oil samples I've ever seen, I've maybe seen acid three or four times because you have to eliminate the base before you're going to get acid to show up. This one's really really close. I mean, if, if he were to run this oil, I told him, get that oil out of the engine um, or get some base added to it, actually, because the rest of the oil looks fine. The viscosity is right about where we expect to see it. Everything else on the oil is fine. We just had to add some base to this. If he doesn't, we would actually start to see an acid number show up. Got it. So we have TBN, yeah. which is total base number, and right next to it, we have TAN, mm-hmm. total acid number. Mm-hmm. But we never yeah, see usually anything those, in that column. Right. I was going to say, usually you don't see anything in the acid, yeah, acid you don't. analysis column. Yeah, this one was close. Had he gone another yeah. 10,000 miles or so, I think we would have seen the, the base depleted completely and we would have seen acid start to form. Ah. Uh. But Great I don't, drill I, I, down. I don't know why. I mean, that was that what brought mm-hmm. up part of this question was why is this happening on this particular engine? And and he says it does not run hot. Yes, right. Well, clearly there's some other variable or variables that need to be taken into account that we just are not aware of. Yeah. Yeah, I, I told him why, while it's happening, until we figure it out, I would get the uh, the Chevron out of there and throw some Rotella in. Seems to hold up better. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Yep. That seems like a reasonable uh, approach. Mm-hmm. It's the seat of the pants uh, judgment call based on what you're seeing, the trends that you're seeing in many, many, many engine oil analysis reports. Yeah. Um, real quick, I'm going to bring somebody else into mm-hmm. the 
Well, I thought I was going to bring somebody else in. I don't see him on the board. I just got a message from my call screener that Matt was on, and he wanted to correct something about power generation. Hmm. But I don't see Matt on the board, so we won't be going to Matt. Oh, he hung up. Angie's going to call him back. When I see Matt on the board, we'll bring him back in. Um, all right, back to you, Jane. Anything else you want to talk about today? I think we did a pretty good job on oxidation there. Oh, well, good. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that covers um, the, the stuff that we needed to... Uh, well, here's one. Okay, I'll mention this one other little thing that uh, is uh, a causation of oxidation, and that's the contaminants. So metal contaminants in the oil is, uh, can catalyze those oxidation reactions. And oh. so, so uh, yeah, copper was one that was was one contaminant, metal contaminant that it, that was mentioned. I'm sure there are others. Interesting. Um, and you know, remember, remember that the the stationary catalyst coatings that are used in the emission system, the uh, diesel oxidative catalysts in particular, the uh, DPFs now have their own proprietary stationary catalytic coatings, and then the um, SCR catalyst in the um, SCR unit that reduces NOx back to N2. So, you know, traces of those catalysts somehow make their way back to the engine oil. Is that a possibility? Here's an interesting thing. I just looked at that sample that I was talking to you about, and mm -hmm. we have kind of an odd reading on copper. We watch copper really closely mm -hmm. because it's a bearing issue. We see lead first mm -hmm. because lead is the outer coating of the bearing. And if we wear through enough lead, we'll start to see copper. And if we see copper, it's time to get in there and look at the bearings and, you know, do they need replaced or what's causing this? I just went back over the last five samples on this engine. The oxidation tracks pretty darn close to the copper. This last sample, we had uh -huh. seven on copper, which is actually pretty high. You start to wonder if that's coming from a bearing or not, but we've never really had much lead. So it was odd when I saw the copper spike to seven, lead has never changed. Lead has been two for the last year plus. And, and, but when the copper spiked, so did the oxidation. And I went back even four samples and we had a spike in copper back then and our oxidation spiked. Okay. I've never looked at those two mm -hmm. before, so this may just be a coincidence, but when you said copper was one of the metals that could do that, I thought, well, I'll take a look. And on five samples, it correlates pretty closely. Oh, interesting. Something to keep an eye out for. I will start watching uh, that. See if you... Huh. Sometimes I've got we an see oil sample here on a crazy copper numbers because the oil cooler just starts leaching out copper. Doesn't hurt anything. Uh, here I'm worried about seven because I think it might be coming from a bearing. We might see three or four hundred on copper sometimes. When we do, we know it's not a bearing. There's not enough copper in the bearing to cause that much. It, it just leaches out of the oil cooler for some random reason. Right. Bruce, what were you saying? Well, so bearing where? Go ahead, please. Yeah. Copper, 
Copper can affect oxidation. It can catalyze. Just like heat, it would act like an acceleration of, of the oxidation reaction. So the catalysts accelerate chemical reactions, just like our fuel-borne catalyst accelerates the combustion reaction in the piston cylinder. Um, so that'd be something we're going to look for. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking at that oil analysis now, Kevin, and I've never seen base that low. I, isn't that crazy? Of all the samples I, know. I see, I've, I've never seen them... Uh, normally they're in the orange, occasionally red, but that's two and a half or so. I've never seen one, like you said, this is, and never seen that. So consistent with, at the same time right, with no apparent reason why this is happening. Now, one thing that I normally ask when I see high oxidation, which can be heat, would be, Low temp, which you would be able to monitor that, and, and the newer X15s would be right if it got too hot. One would be the air compressor. If it runs constantly, oh, that's a good that point. can superheat that small amount of oil going through there. That's a good point. I wonder point. if his um, air compressor hey, is hot. Hey, Leroy? Yeah? You know, when I ask a driver, did this engine get hot, their only indication may be, you know, that an alarm went off or a shutdown node, something along that lines. And if that doesn't happen, it's not like they're watching oil and water temperature constantly. Can, is that ever recorded anywhere? Can we pull that history out? Yeah. So inside of X15s, there's an abuse history. And if it ever crossed any sort of the threshold from least severe to most severe, that it would be recorded when it happened and what temperature it was. Okay. I want to say the first step for least severe is around 248, something like that, 245, 250 is level one. And then, you know, it just steps up from there. So, you know, here's- now, a lot of those readings are kelp, not the oil temp. As long as they don't have sensors in the pan, the older ISXs did not. They calculated that reading, which was the older ones, but the new ones actually have a real oil temp sensor. I don't think it's in the pan. I think it's in the rail. So it's surprisingly accurate though. Here's something else I'm thinking about. We've heard cases. I don't, I'm trying to remember. I don't know if it was from John and his racing experience or maybe you, Bruce, of really, really getting oil hot sometimes. I mean, I've heard like 300 degrees and that much heat really isn't supposed to degrade the oil. Okay. I thought it might've been. That was from me. We uh, we used to tow with a 396 Chevy. Uh, it was in a Caprice, turbo 400 transmission, 370 gears, Bach Dragstar open trailer, and we controlled our speed by our engine oil temperature gauge. We knew that the oil could t- go up to 300 degrees, so we would back out of the throttle at 295. Huh. So, Jane, and that's how, how we drove that car. If, if it's, you know, if we're so worried about heat and we're really running our oil temperature, you know, 240, we're starting to get warnings. How does that, I mean, are we damaging it then? Well, yeah, I mean, it's accumulation, it's a cumulative effect. So the time okay. at temperature, so... Um, the longer you are at a high temperature, and this could be for five minutes or it could be for five hours, you Got know, it. the more damage you do. 
That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But yet the OEMs put a 235-degree thermostat in the oil cooler because they want the oil hotter. Well, if, if I'm right, Jane, you said that the heat doesn't necessarily cause the oxidation. It just causes the reaction to happen faster. So there already has to be a reaction. And then the high oil temps just accelerate it. Got it. Correct. Could, yeah. Yeah. Could, for every, for when you're above 140 degrees Fahrenheit, according to this article, engine oil temperature, for every increase of 18 degrees Fahrenheit, it doubles the oxidation reaction rate. So is it also possible yeah. that there are places in the engine where the oil's getting superheated? but not enough to really affect the overall temperature of the oil? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we could be running... Yeah, it's just in one place. We we could be running oil at, you know, 230 degrees, but somewhere in the engine, could could it be getting 300 degrees? That's right. the first place I think of is you have, you know, oil on the cylinder wall, and then you have a piston slamming against a small <laughs> little film. Yeah. On you know. the wide bearing. Yeah. Uh, somewhere like that. That's a lot of pressure. Like, it's, what, there's some sort of, you know, uh, correlation between as pressure rises, especially as pressure rises quickly, temperature is going to rise. So, in mm-hmm. those sort of little hot spots, you're going to get a lot of so oxidation, when, probably. Very good. When mm-hmm. we talk about engine architecture... And we talk about, you know, bore and stroke and the angle of the connecting rod. And the ISX is pretty extreme on that. Is that why we tend to see more of these issues with the ISX or the X-15? I mean, that's one good reason. They do have a lot of side thrust. Right. I mean, if I've talked about last week with, you know, poor programs where... They get so much side thrust that when you tear them apart, you see scoring on the liner on the thrust side. So that's telling me that the oil is gone and the piston is just metal on metal at that point. So Mm -hmm. if we go back to Rotella, um, Rotella has a lot of zinc. Zinc is very protective of the metal and friction. It's one of the reasons why we like Rotella. And it's actually one of the reasons, you know, I've talked to John about this, race teams use it a lot because it's got so much protective zinc. Maybe that's one of the reasons the Rotella seems to hold up to this better. Oh, no doubt. That's a really good insight, Kevin. Now, you know, when your oil layer gets to the point where it's no longer protecting it against metal to metal wear, then you've got a layer of zinc to kick in and keep keep the boundary layer intact to prevent the two metal surfaces from, you know, rubbing each rubbing and uh, creating more friction, more heat. Good insight. Good insight. Hmm. I'm gonna I look up we should one some more. Yeah, we, we probably should. Um, but, oh, here's, here's sorry, I used to. Sorry. I apologize. I used the technical term boundary layer. Do people know what that is? I, <laughs> boundary layer is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. It, it, you can we, figure that out. Yeah, we could, get, we could get deep into this and why uh, <laughs> synthetic oils are, are superior to uh, mineral oils or traditional oils. That, that boundary layer is thinner but stronger. 
And it's because of the way the, right. the and, molecules and so, line up in a synthetic oil. They, they, the best example or the best analogy I've heard of this is if you look at conventional oil, the molecules would look like a big pile of spaghetti that you mixed up. And if you look at synthetic, it looks like spaghetti in the box where it's all pointing in the same direction and it forms a thinner, stronger barrier. I'm not sure how accurate that is. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, you know, um, boundary layer, I don't think is as descriptive as a mono layer is. So just imagine, you know, a single love one layer thick uniform coating of um, whatever the chemical substance is, zinc, zinc or whatever. Um, so it doesn't have to be ultra thick. It just has to be ultra uniformly dense. Um, Which is what they've described synthetic as. That's kind of the difference um, in the molecular structure. Here's something else that's interesting. I just thought about this. Zinc is a very powerful antioxidant in our body. Oh, it's all coming together. <laughs> How weird. So is it possible that the zinc is protecting the metal, so less friction, less heat, and it's also an antioxidant in and of itself? Good thought. Huh. It's um, something we could dig into further, yeah. possibly. All right. So we are going to get to calls because we've had some people waiting patiently. Jane, are, are you hanging out with us to take calls? Yes, sir. I am. I'll be right here. Excellent. Just let me let's, know. Let's get started because the first question is for you. Herschel, welcome. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? I, Jane, I... I come across the thread of discussion on the Volvo Masters group on the Facebook garbage. That's what I call it. Um, (laughs) The claim was, and of course they're talking Volvo specific, but it really shouldn't matter. But the claim was that a cetane booster was superior to the fuel catalyst that you guys have, the max mileage, because the max mileage produces, and this is, was the claim. I don't know this at all. This was the claim, and now I'm curious. That the pro- byproduct of using max mileage after it burns through the system of the engine, the byproduct, he called it ferric oxide, also known as rust, was the claim, and that because of that byproduct, it then will continue into the exhaust stream and plug a DPF and cause damage because of that rust from burning the catalyst. Is there any truth to that? Well, it's, it's a classic case of somebody with limited knowledge is, does more harm than good by sharing it. Um, so... Let's start with why she used the catalyst in the first place is to accelerate the combustion of fuel and air in the combustion stroke. So um, it doesn't burn. It it gets it itself comes in as an organometallic uh, molecule that then goes out as a trace of iron oxide. Okay which is ash and I mean, it's just any mineral 
uh, calcium, magnesium, lead, copper, all of those things are ash, contribute to ash. It just means it's not organic. It will not burn. And so most of it, um, we're just contributing a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of something that's already in the engine exhaust and for the most part gets trapped in the DPF. So that is why, well, actually, or it just runs through. But, you know, the particles could be so small and so diluted that they just get carried straight through the DPF and go out into the atmosphere through the tailpipe, right? But um, the majority of ash that gets collected in a DPF is going to be from engine oil additives, uh, calcium, zinc, uh, and also your coolants. Um, things that are present in coolant and coolant and and, and so that's why the manufacturers of the diesel particulate filters recommend that you take the things off and clean them to remove ash at regular intervals. So for, for Volvo, I don't know what that recommended mileage interval is, um, but I, I think the general rule of thumb is if you've gone 300,000 miles, you want to start thinking about scheduling a DPF cleaning um, up to 500,000 for sure you want to start thinking about a DPF cleaning to remove the ash buildup, which would include a little bit of iron oxide as contributed by the use of the catalyst, but the iron oxide that we're producing is so minuscule, it's really trace levels, it's, it's lower than the amount that's present in fuel without the catalyst. It's very, you know, it's low parts per million in the fuel. And so um, iron contaminants that get into fuel as it makes its way from the refinery to your tank oftentimes are higher than the levels that we're adding it with the inorganic, um, organometallic formula in our, in our product. So, it's not a concern. It does not plug the DPF, <laughs> but it does slightly contribute. It is, about, it is valid to say that it's going to contribute to uh, other ash species that are building up in the DPF slowly, slowly, slowly over time. So does that answer your question? It, it so, does. Uh, Herschel, I can, I can add a little to that. So I, I agree with Jane. This is where somebody took a little bit of information and extrapolated out to a problem that isn't existing. What they're explaining is happening right. is correct. So that this is always the worst kind of myth. It's got a little bit of truth to it. So it starts to make sense. That is what's happening. We even see iron go up on an oil sample. And I always ask to make sure I'm, I'm you know, taking that into account, but here's what we know. We know after years of using this in lots and lots of trucks, the opposite occurs. We don't have to clean the emissions right. more often. We clean them far less often. So what they're claiming is happening is happening up until the point where they claim it clogs the DPF. N no, it doesn't. It, it, eventually no, it, doesn't. it could, but lots of things would clog the DPF eventually. This is actually improving the situation, not making it worse. And, and that was my comment back. My understanding is it makes it better, not worse. Absolutely. But the claim, the, the allegation was ferric oxide, not iron oxide. Is that the same thing? I thought so. <laughs> well, these, people are, these people are really out of their uh, pay grade. <laughs> they start I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
I slept through chemistry <laughs> I mean, I class, and I can figure that one out. <laughs> I've used Catalyst for years, and I've never seen a detriment to it at all. It works fine. I, in fact, I think they run better with it on there. You know, the... the well, my you rather, really like Yeah, I mean, hundreds of thousands of miles of trouble-free operation of your DPF because you're not getting slowed down by soot buildup. That's worth so, a lot, and yeah, that's what the Catalyst so, does. So let's go back to where this might exactly. be coming from on the Volvo side. Um, the newest Volvos, the turbo compounded, and we've talked about this architecture. We've talked about piston speed, piston speed. You know, I think we always assumed where we just never thought about it, that RPM dictated piston speed. It seems like it should, but that's not necessarily true based on the architecture, the bore and stroke, all those factors we talked about. The, piston speed on the Volvo is so much slower because the architecture, it's not running away from that combustion event quite as quickly. That's allowing a better burn on that engine. And so we have found that when a Volvo engine is specced properly and driven properly, it doesn't really benefit as much from the catalyst as other engines may not even be necessary. Then one of the things that some people, Joel was big on this, started doing was just adding a cetane booster. And that improved it even more. It was improving that, but it was the engine architecture and specking that engine right so that you were in the proper RPM, you were maintaining the proper heat, which helps the emissions, and that slower piston speed was allowing a more complete burn. That may be where that's coming that's from, right. but that's a very specific set of that's that's not every Volvo on the road. There are lots of Volvos on the road not spec'd properly that are still seeing that problem. So that's probably they're they're taking a lot of information and coming up with an answer that's incorrect. Even though all the parts might be correct, they're coming up with the wrong conclusion. Correct. Well, they, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't scare me off. I use the Catalyst. I have for years. I got a new bottle of it that's supposed to deliver today coming to the house. <laughs> there so, you go. Yeah, it is, it is well, what it is. Yeah. Um, well, another, I want to start with what you started with in your um, introduction is that is Cetane better than the Catalyst? Okay. Cetane boosters, uh, they provide an a little bit of a combustion boost on the front end by accelerating ignition of fuel, but that's just at the beginning of the burn. And it, you know, it takes a, uh, so it's not instantaneous. Your fuel ignites, then it goes through a peak uh, burn rate, and then it slowly drops off. So um, the catalyst, our catalyst, accelerates the burn rate throughout that burn curve period. And so that results in a net 10% improved uh, combustion efficiency, which bring 10% more of the fuel, converting that to heat energy, which gives you more horsepower and better performance and less wear from vibration. The cetane boost, in contrast, it just uh, helps on the very front end. It helps ignition start um, a little more easily if you've got enough in it and you have to use a lot. <laughs> so for somebody to just issue a blanket statement that cetane is better than the catalyst, they just really are, are not taking into account a lot of different 
um, factors, and and one of them Kevin brought up is that those low RPM, low uh, piston speed engines are are just more thermally efficient anyway. So it stands to reason that they would notice an an, an ignition improvement from a cetane boost, whereas they might not see quite as much of an improvement with the use of the catalyst because they're already very, very efficient in the first place, as Kevin pointed out. Does that help you? It does. It does. It does. Thank let you me, a lot. Let me, add, let me add one thing to this. Okay. Back in the late 90s, I was spending a lot of time with Boris Lucas uh, in California, Lucas Oil, and we talked about cetane and adding more and he said cetane basically helps the engine to start yeah so what you were saying jane is is the starting of the burn and so that's basically what cetane did uh, boris said it wasn't all that important in the performance of the fuel right i mean the cetane chemistry is a is a um nitrate based chemistry technically it's a detonator uh, so <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know it's just a whole different animal from what the catalyst is, and it it has a different mechanism. Does it improve um, combustion efficiency a little bit by improving starting and ignition? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, you got to use quite a bit of it. it. It's it you can you can pick up a bottle of any cetane boost additive out there, and they'll tell you in the fine print that the more you add. Uh, the more effective boost in cetane number you will get. So, right. Yeah. I, I do know that on the Volvo side, they say, and by this is per Joel, Joel Morrow, he says that Volvo wants 47 number for cetane, and most fuel at the pump is 40. So that's why they are advocates of the cetane boost, plus it has a lubricity agent in it as well. But I still think that, yes, that would have a benefit, like you say, to start the fuse burning on the firecracker, but the catalyst makes it go bang. And the paper flies away instead of being in a blob. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's wonderful. (laughs) Herschel, have you put the catalyst in any gasoline? Oh, my John Deere and my Honda Goldwing love that stuff. Yeah. And Bill Feldman, our general manager, just uh, over the weekend has one of the big Husqvarna leaf blowers, and it wasn't working quite right, and he put the catalyst in it, and he said, wow, what an improvement. Uh, and how many people with leaf blowers and chainsaws and, and, and how many mechanics that have taken a head off of an engine and said to the owner-operator, Wow, there's absolutely no soot in your engine. What are you doing? And he says, I'm running the max mileage catalyst. So, my 93 John Deere long tractor used to smoke at startup pretty heavy, and now not a puff out of it. Yeah, yeah, um, thanks for sharing. I, I just wanted to one more little thing, Kevin, if you have a moment. Uh, local story here I've got uh, friends in town who whom I've met since I moved back to my home state of North Carolina. And one of them is a a very enterprising young man. He has a um, small farm of his own, but he's also the foreman for a much larger farm operation that does corn, soybeans, hay, and they have three or four John Deere combines. And so he, um, 
this fellow, his name is Matt, uh, he started using max mileage in his older model diesel pickup truck, gave it new life. He loved it. Then he, he also does excavation, so he started using it in a Caterpillar excavator. Um, and again, you know, just really turned that around. And um, so he's telling his uh, employer, the, the big farmer, about it. And, and uh, so a couple of those John Deere combines are still under warranty. So naturally, he was um, a little reticent to jump right in. And, and, you know, sometimes this is a great lesson in having somebody else knowing exactly how to say the right thing, whereas, uh, you know, if it had been me talking to that farmer, I would have blown it, I'm sure. <laughs> but the farmer's objection was, well, I don't use additives, right? And Matt said to him, well, you do. You use you use uh, winterizer, anti-gel, and de-icer in your equipment every every winter, don't you? And he goes, yeah, but that's I do that only because that's what the truckers do. <laughs> and then Matt said, came back with, well, <laughs> said, well, truckers love this stuff. That's how I heard about it. <laughs> and so that's how he overcame this farmer with the John Deere equipment subjection. I thought that's so brilliant. I'm so glad I wasn't there to have ruined it somehow. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Simple, straightforward. <laughs> yep, exactly. Hey, you know, it's it's so weird. Um, while you guys were talking, I zoned out a little bit and I was reading one of my emails and it's a Kickstarter project and it's a crazy tiny little flashlight fits almost in the palm of your hands. It produces 2,500 lumens, which is a lot for a tiny little light. But one thing they make a big deal out of, it has a micro arc oxidation ceramic coating. And I, I have no idea why that's important. I, uh, I haven't had time to read this whole thing, but that word oxidation just caught my attention again. I don't know what the purpose of it on this particular device is. It uh, sounds great. It does. I mean, it sounds very impressive. I don't know why, but uh, all right, Herschel, have we finished with you? Yes, sir. Yeah, good enough. All right. We'll, we'll go. We'll have, leave it there. All right. Thanks. We have a lot going on today. Um, all good stuff. Oh, we got Matt back. So we can find out uh, what we were talking about. Matt, welcome. Yeah. Good morning. Um, well, I just want to, uh, I don't know, if correct or, or add to qualify your statement. Yeah. When you. Uh, we talk about electric trucks and the, and the power grid. You are correct when you say 80% of our electricity. You misspeak when you say coal. 80% comes from fossil fuels. Oh, okay. So natural gas Which probably. Majority, yeah. The majority of that now today, over the last 10 years, we've done a huge shift into natural gas. So natural gas is actually our largest fossil fuel now for for energy production. Got it. Which is thirty eight percent of all of it. Coal which, is actually down to twenty two percent. Right. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. So and, and it's being that should be significantly cleaner. Yes. 
Well, remember the contribution from renewables, wind and solar, are also bringing the percentage from coal down because the percentage of those two have been going up. And uh, so it's not being substituted just by natural gas. It's also being replaced so, by renewable energy from So is this correct? Yep. Did I, do I remember hearing that natural gas was almost a byproduct of fracking? Don't we get a ton of natural gas from fracking? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, fracking all oil production actually. So that's in right. the old days they used to just flare it off. Right. That would be the you know the flame out there at the oil well. Right. Burning the natural gas instead of releasing it into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we when we and yeah, there's a lot slow down more fracking when we frack. Yeah, yeah. When we slow down fracking, we don't have as much natural yeah. gas available. Yep. <laughs> It's very complicated. So, all of our our expansion into natural gas could all of a sudden become a problem. Yeah. <laughs> when it could have been part of the solution as we move towards yep. you know cleaner and cleaner energy production, natural gas should just be a part of that progression. Well, but Kevin, it has been. It was the first it was the first and easiest to implement. Uh, whereas it's taken time and and a lot of, you know a lot of time and a lot of inter- infrastructure to develop the solar and the wind facilities to a point where they're scaled to the same extent as natural gas could achieve in a much shorter span of time. So they have been and they continue will be uh, can, can, will continue to be part of the solution. And gradually it'll be phased out, just like uh, coal. But now you know it's, it's all free market driven the price of energy from solar and wind is very competitive well how free market is it when the government shut down the production that's not very free market um no i'm just talking about um the uh cost advantage oh yeah yeah absolutely Once once you get to an economy of scale then the price start per unit starts to come down it's simple economics and and so simple economics have dictated the gradual reduction in price per unit of energy from that comes from wind and solar to the point where it's now quite competitive with the traditional fossil fuels, natural gas, and coal. That's all I'm saying. Got it. Well, but we have the, the bigger <laughs> I, I problem. I probably argue with that. Well, but it, we, the yeah. biggest problem we have with those two is um, we have to store that energy. Yeah. Well, that's we right. And on the wind yeah. and solar. Yeah, we can't we can't use it on so demand. What? I mean, we can use it on demand. We just can't count on know. it on demand. Well, I don't know if the subsidies helped that year that Chinese dumped a bunch of solar into the market, and a lot of our fledgling solar uh, startups here in this country went belly up because. Yeah. The price war. Yeah, I mean, I, there wasn't there was no government bailout of those startups, and there shouldn't be. There were a lot of tax and, subsidies. Right, there shouldn't though. be. So, there were a lot of tax subsidies that got them going, and I think those should just stop. Well, fine, whether it's you know? Tesla or anybody else, that stop spending my money well, on technology that's going to be beat right. by the Chinese, or um, let the free market move us to this when. It, it actually makes sense. But when we start shutting down production of natural gas and subsidizing solar and wind, that's no longer free market. 
Well, you have to get back to the reasons why that becomes important as a priority. So, but you know, we're not going to. We don't have to go into that. <laughs> no, because it it could get deep because the the storage is the problem. These batteries are not good for our environment. They're just not, and that's our only choice now. We're storing energy from those two sources and that's but you're right let's let's move on um matt thank you for the correction um i have seen that printed many many times that that number that 80 percent somebody keeps printing that it's coal i i I know i didn't make that up i've read it several times but this makes more sense that's just not true that's just not true i mean we we've we're down to less than 30% for sure. Got it. All right. Yeah. And I'm the numbers and I sent this to you, Kevin is coming right from the EIA Got it. information, whatever it is. Got and it. this is 2021 numbers. And in the, um, fossil fuels, nuclear is also included because obviously uranium is a, is a fossil fuel. Yeah, there's 20% renewables, and then they have the breakdown on that. Got but it. The one, we, we've always had a fair amount of renewables. Most of it was hydro. Right. But they're actually shutting down hydro. I know. Wind and solar is, is making up the difference. Got it. All right. Good lesson there. We're learning a lot of stuff today. It's been a very informative show. Let's go to Illinois. Larry, welcome to the program. Good morning. I guess I'm going to shift gears here quite a bit. That's all right. Because I want to talk about a crash mitigation system. Okay. And the problem I'm having, I have a 2019 Kenworth T680. And all I have for the crash mitigation system is the sensor that's in the front bumper. I don't have lane departure or anything like that. In the snow... And I have my cruise control off in the snow. This thing just starts going nuts, saying that I'm following a vehicle too close when there's nobody at all in front of me. And then it'll start flashing a brake light real hard, and then it'll just slam on the brakes. And I took the truck in the... Yeah, yeah, it is. I took the truck into Kenworth. They cleared the code out, took it for a test drive, and said everything's good to go. (laughs) Well, no, everything ain't good to go. It works fine except for in the snow. So I did ask him, can I eliminate the system? And I knew what I, the answer I was going to get was absolutely not. They did say, though, that if you have this problem, you can pull over, take that front cover off, unplug the sensor, but then you're not going to have your cruise control. Well, that's fine. I don't use it in the snow anyway. But... And when it fl- stepped on, uh, when it slammed on the brakes on me a couple times, then it threw another code saying interactive cruise was disabled, and that was fine with me too because then I didn't have the problem anymore. So who builds this then the system? system? Just didn't work at all. Is this Eaton? Oh, I would assume. I would assume it's Kenworth or uh, probably, I don't know. And yeah, I was just wondering if this may if not Pitt, be. If Pittsburgh Power had anybody customers with that? You know, here's the interesting thing about this, yeah, I, this system. I. Back in early 2000, I built a truck with the Eaton Vorad system, and it had front-looking radar, side-looking radar, was tied into the smart cruise. The system worked really, really well. Like, I, you know, I've, I keep hearing these stories about bridges, set this stuff off. 
signs, all kinds of... No, that's, that's mine off. I, I never had any of those issues. Now, the interesting thing was that truck never ran in the snow. Uh, that, that truck was based in Florida and never got farther north than, you know, South Carolina. It never really saw snow. So I don't know if that would have caused a problem or not. But what's crazy to me is that was 20 some years ago. And we still have these kind of problems with these systems. That seems crazy to me. Well, I'm just trying to see if anybody's a solution to my problem. Yeah, because I, have one. I can't have the truck slamming out of brakes in the snow. I have one. And don't don't come what north. Is it? Don't come north of I-40 in the wintertime. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I have a dedicated run from Rockford, <laughs> Illinois, to Port Huron, Michigan. Oh, that's bad. And I, yeah. I do a lot of snow. <laughs> yeah, you do. Speaking of snow, um, it is snowing like crazy here right now. I had no idea we were supposed to get snow today. But it's you, coming, coming down pretty hard. Huh. I, I believe that system. Does your Kenworth have a Cummins in it? Or is it packed? It has the X-15, yes. I believe that you can disable it. Um, it's just a matter if you can disable it without there being light on the dash or like the, another screen being upset all the time. But I believe that I have disabled those in the past. I know I've done them on DD-15s successfully, but I can't think of the last comments I've done. I know people complain about it all the time. No one just ever asked me to shut it off. So, But I think that you can't do it. And if I was to shut it off, then would I have my cruise control still? Yeah, because I think what you're doing is you're not you're shutting off the adaptive cruise part of it, and you're just using you're just turning it into regular cruise control. You're not disabling all of cruise control. You're just disabling the adaptive part of it. So, Leroy, is and that if I go to a remote, yeah, I was just going to ask. If I that. go to a remote tuner, can you can can you look at it? Yeah, I mean, I'll look at it. We'll we'll give it a. Uh, you know, the best that we can. So if we can't do it, can't do it, but I think there's a good chance we can. I will set up an appointment with a remote tuner. Excellent. Okay. Perfect. And, and, let, right. and let you take a look at it. And if we can do it, we can do it. And if we can't, we can't. Got it. All right. And but I, there's, yeah. a re, there's a remote tuner in Hampshire, Illinois, and I will call them up and Perfect. head on over there. Perfect. All right. Uh, okay. Larry and... We'll cut you loose, Leroy. We want a follow-up report on this one. Okay. All right. If I remember, I'll try. You'll remember. (laughs) We're going to head off to New York. Charlie, welcome to the program. Hey, 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 Charles. Charles. Yes. You got to get in the same room with your telephone. Uh, I'm right beside it. Yeah, well, it doesn't sound like it. You got to do something to help us out here. All right, how's that? That is much better. Go ahead. All right. Uh, 60 days ago, I had the head pulled off of my truck. Number six injector was seized into the injector cup. They cleaned, they got it out. Supposedly, they cleaned up the injector cup, put the new O-ring on, put the injector back in. I've got a 2.7 fuel dilution. So when I pulled my last sample with the 
viscosity at 17.3, the oxidation and the nitrate all out of whack. I took it to Penn Detroit and had them run a diagnostics on it. Number one injector was lagging by the computer. <clears throat> they pulled it in yesterday. What would cause the number six injector to be seized back in that injector cup in 60 days? So, so, I mean, carbon can do that. Um, or they will rust in there with coolant, if coolant's leaking, which you would see in the oil analysis. I'm wondering if carbon's getting past there. Um, which would be once they pull the injector out, they should see that it's covered in carbon. It should give them a, a sign that there's a, a, an issue. Because what what Penn Detroit's saying is that it needs another head. What would be wrong with the head that would cause it to need a head by the, I mean, they, they're pulling it now. I haven't been out to look at it. But what would possibly go wrong with that head that they wouldn't have seen when they had it off the first time? Or I'd say there's a there's a problem with the injector cup or injector tube versus the head. Okay. Because are these are the same these. people that had it off 60 days ago, Charlie? No. This is the same people, the same man that has did the original rebuild that's out at uh, Penn, Penn Detroit, Penn Power. The man that's got it apart has been working on Detroit for about 55 years. Okay. And every time so he works on it, he's he's the only one other than your shop, Bruce, that I will allow. I didn't have much choice in the other ones pulling the head. They decided to pull the head instead of testing the air compressor like I wanted them to. Uh, so I knew 60 days ago that I was going to have this issue. That it was going to be coming back apart. Every time I let someone do something to that truck other than Pen Power Group or your shop, 45 to 60 days later, it's going into one of the two. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And what did? why did the guy pull the head off 60 days ago? What was the symptom? The symptom was it was holding pressure in the coolant system with the engine shut off for over 24 hours. And when he took the cap off, it would push cooling out. But when you drove it, it didn't overheat, didn't push any cooling out. But the air air tanks never bled down. That's why I wanted them to check the air compressor. Because correct me if I'm wrong, when you shut that engine down, all the pressure off of them cylinders bleeds up. Correct? So you can crank it to start it the next day. The cylinders don't sit there and hold pressure all for twenty four hours, no. do they? No, it's gonna it's gonna go down past the rings. 
That's what I thought. Yeah, there's no compression there. So, so you were saying that when you took the radiator cap off, it would gush out coolant. Yes. But it wouldn't overheat, and it wouldn't gush it out. But there was heater hoses that was on there from the factory, 2006, that was blowing one at a time. They said that it was a blowed head gasket that caused that. They said uh, old heater hoses blowing was a head gasket? Yep. I figured because I had had problems with the air compressor on this truck before the inlet coming from the air breather to the compressor would blow on the between the uh, the little short hose that would blow it. So I changed the air compressor and stopped blowing that. What I was thinking, and they wouldn't test the air compressor, was possibly the head on the compressor either had a crack or the gasket was blown and it was allowing it to bleed air into the cooling system as long as them air tanks got air does the air compressor have air to it as long as you got air in the air tanks because the air compressor never kicks off your air compressor doesn't kick off when it gets to 120 psi and pop, the valve pops, but don't the compressor keep turning? It's oh, yeah, the compressor keeps turning. Yeah, yeah, it's, it keeps turning. That, so. That's what I mean. Yeah, it kicks off because, mm-hmm. uh, actually, I changed that. I had to change that regulator, but for some reason, mine builds to 150, but I think the gauge okay. is wrong. <laughs> okay. So, but that's no reason to pull a head off. Because of heater hoses. Well, that's what they decided to do, and with uh, with the injector being stuck it, again, we replace the heater hose. A uh, we did a eighteen year old heater hose. Just replace it. We did, but they wanted uh, they they figured that that was the cause was a blowed head gasket. So did they do the bubble test to verify that? So what we do is we take the cap off. And we have a, a funnel that fits on top of the nope. radiator. We they didn't do no test. Bubble. So they basically jumped to conclusions without any testing. What they did, the only test they did is they put a pressure tester on it, started the truck, and it built a 10-pound of pressure real quick. And they assumed that it was a blowed head gasket because it built a 10-pound of pressure too quick. But on the cap, it says 15 PSI to make the cap pop off. So yeah. shouldn't they have left it build up above 15 pounds before they assumed that it was a head gasket? Yeah, they just didn't complete the test. They, they didn't follow through any procedures to verify that was the problem. 
Yeah, and see, none. Of, I mean, that's being done now that it's at an actual Detroit shop. <coughs> but I was just curious of what would have caused the injector to seize up twice if there actually could be an issue with that head. If they have that injector and haven't cleaned it yet, get them to take a picture of it and send it to you. My guess is carbon. That's what I'm planning on doing, getting the rod out here and taking a picture of the of the injector and the uh, injector cup and the head just to see. I want pictures to see what it is. Yeah, I mean, this shop ahead. that it's in now, I trust as much as just like I trust your shop. I've got all the faith in the world in them. Injectors get stuck in a head would be carbon or antifreeze. And, and that's over a length. I mean, that's a long time where guys will have very small trace of antifreeze or maybe adding a little bit gets around the uh, tip of the, the injector itself. It doesn't leak into the engine side of it and it, it corrodes and you're really getting a tough time getting them out there. It's very obvious. Maybe a gallon of Maybe a gallon of antifreeze in 60 days? Yeah, about 60 days would be enough for that to happen. But we're, we're talking usually a length of time for it to, uh, you know, rust up. You know, the good antifreeze, it's not going to do that. I mean, you're going to have a leak there. But I, I, what, what about, get, like, get a look at the injector, and that would tell us a lot more. Okay. Well, I'll get some pictures. I'm going to call to get a ride out here. They should hopefully have the head off where I can take some pictures and I'll forward them to you, Bruce, Pete, and Leroy. Yep. Uh, so, all right. Well, I appreciate everything. Hi, Charlie. You're welcome. All right. Y'all have a you have a good day, and I appreciate everything you do. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Let's head off to Pennsylvania. Brian, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Um, I just wanted to say first off, I, I don't know. It seems like one of your callers might be getting some preferential treatment. I, I think it's because he's sleeping with the call screener. Can you believe that? Imagine that. Holy cow, it sounds like a major <laughs> scandal to me. This is this who's, is the next thing that'll get you canceled. Kevin. Who who is sleeping with our call screener? <laughs> it's Matt. <laughs> I, I don't know how it happened, but he ended up right at the top of the list somehow. Unbelievable. Uh, hey, I Kevin, I think you were thinking of uh John actually um, recently mentioned that he's running like non-exotic diesel oil in his son's race car um, for the whole season with no oil cooler running over 300 degrees, no oil change the whole season. I, I think that's right. We talk I... about all these issues. Yeah, we, we talk about all these issues with oil, but. I think it's just evidence of how good even mundane oils are today. Uh, it, it doesn't really seem to cause a problem. 
Yeah, I think I did remember it correctly. It was both John and Bruce that had stories about running oil like yeah. that really hot without problems. Now I do remember, um, I thought John's story was pretty incredible. Like, you, you have race teams yeah. that change pistons more often than he changes oil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. I got so many things. Um, is Jane still with us? Can she tell us about the mechanisms of the uh, the uh, the fuel mileage improver that they're testing? How how that all works? Is there any cetane in there, or, or what? She, what kind of mechanisms does she do? can she can tell you? But we'll have to send out an execution team. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Thanks for handling that for me. <laughs> <laughs> Anything okay. you want to yeah, add I'm to that, Jay? Uh, well, I mean, Bruce is very excited about the mileage improver, and so we're um, trying to make it happen. There we go. We have more Are testing coming up as well. That sounds like the extent okay. of what uh -huh. you're going to get, Brian. Fair, fair enough. All right. I guess to the real reason I called, I want to, I want to go back and talk about Jake brakes some more. Okay. Um, you know, anybody that's ever driven an ISX that isn't driving one now is probably jealous of the Jake brake. And, uh, uh, I, I wanted to just get into some more details. I guess first off, Pete, you mentioned rebuilding them. Is there also a point where you just got to replace the whole housing. I think Bruce has mentioned this before. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now we haven't seen that on the ISXs. We see that on much older engines. This is a big problem with the 60 series, just because of the amount of miles that are on the uh, J-Brake housings. They're just simply wearing out. Okay. And then um, I guess the. I know with the Series 60, if you dig deep, you can find some charts. There's there's different models of Jake Brake, right? And some are stronger than others, and different cams can affect that. And it, it all gets... Yeah, so as far as cam timing, as far as when you open the exhaust valve, does make a difference. Um, I, there's a chart in that book I was mentioning earlier that um, they found, uh, according to this one study, that 20 degrees... Years get the... Oh, hello? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, in, in this one study, they found that uh, 20 degrees before top dead center produced the most uh, power uh, for, as far as jaking uh, performance. So, it was like in 10 degree increments. And you could okay. see... It started to go up, and then after like 20 degrees before top dead center, it started to fall down. And then um, obviously after top dead center is no good. So, um, yeah, cam timing definitely makes a difference as far as uh, when you want it to come on. That makes it up either a more powerful Jake or less powerful. Excellent. Um, and then even even when you talk about the older comers, right? The conventional wisdom seems to be like the N14 had to 
the most engine braking power and maybe the Series 60 the least and kind of in between. Is there a true? Is there a reason for that? So I think the ISX has the most. Uh, Cummins has always done a good job with the engine brake, even N14 or NPC compared to cats. E model cats were uh, horrible. They, they didn't do much to make noise. So if you were to compare N14, 2WS, and 60 series, of about engines about the same era. I don't know. I've never seen any charts which ones are better or worse. To me, they feel like they're all going to be about the same because they. I don't think any of them used the double lobe cam back then. And then I think the next biggest thing would be turbo sizing. Um, that's the, one of the biggest components to a strong take brake is turbo sizing. So I'm not sure. I've never seen any charts that was better or worse. I think the N14 was slightly better than the 60 series, which wasn't bad. But, but you know, again, what we're seeing now is simply that the housings are wore out and it's really weak. Yeah. And to replace the housings are terribly expensive. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right. Um, and then is there, I'm, I'm still a little confused as to the actual mechanics. So is there, are there cam loads just for the Jake brake? Is that how that works? On an ISX, there is because they don't have a whole housing. So they have the rocker shaft and there's the, there's the rocker level lever with the detent that when you supply oil pressure to the detent that engages the rocker level for the Jake brake. But on the, Older stuff that wasn't common rail, I believe the Jake housing sort of worked with the injector lobe, right? Correct. Yeah. And yeah, 14, um, the 60 series of cats, uh, they would use the injector lobe to work the Jake brake, which would not give you the optimum braking performance. And that's why the ISX, even on the 98 Signature 600, uh, they had a separate lobe to run the Jake brake so that the Jake was open right when it's supposed to be and not kind of as an afterthought. You know, the first thought was how do we get the injector uh, where it needs to be? That's the, the first thought. And then let's work the Jake brake off the same lobe. And that's why when the ISX came out, the Jake was just blew everything away. They were so much better. It had a separate lobe just to manage the Jake brake. Yeah. Oh, good, good yeah. stuff. Appreciate it. I would, I would imagine if you ran off the injector lobe, it's probably they probably opened it pretty early then the Jake brake. And I'm thinking back to that chart. So if you open it, there's like a, a sweet spot to where you get the most jaking power, right? And I imagine if you opened it too early, then yeah, you would get less jaking power. So if you had its own lobe, then you could set. I want it to come on here. That's where it gets the most power. So, yeah, I can imagine running off the injector lobe would not be as effective. For sure. Does that help, Ryan? Good stuff. Yeah, thank you. All right. Good stuff. We've got a couple more calls to get through here. I, I'm probably going to have a report here soon in the next probably day or two on how well my new electric snowblower is going to work. They're talking about nine inches and 40 mile an hour winds in the gorge today. So 
I might get a chance to try it. Let's go to Alberta. Ben, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Hey, um, I have had a question. How do we know uh, without uh, putting this truck on a dyno how much horsepower it's got? Is there a good way to know? Well, you have to know. You have to have a known, Ben. By the way, Kevin, this is the fellow that had the, the Mac that we redid the exhaust system on and the clear air filter, and he went from 20 pound of boost to 30, or was it 25 to 35? But anyway, it was okay. a 10-pound gain. Okay, so I, I was kind of wondering, I mean, if we're talking about a stock engine, you can kind of sort of go by the rating, right? I mean, they're usually pretty accurate. But this, he well, wants to know how well, much he's improved. Right, and if you know what the engine is supposed to make, like we know that a 500 Detroit and a 500 N14 both make 30 pound of boost. The old ISX non-EGR, the Signature 600 made 30 pound of boost. A four and a quarter B cat was 20 to 22. Um, so you have to have a known, and then you can go from there. But so I don't have a known on the Mac. Okay, I see. Well, I've got lots of boost. Um, well, the boost is anywhere from 25 to 36, 37, depending on the RPM. The higher the RPM, the lower the boost. So the the lower the RPM, the higher the boost when I'm pulling. So like when I'm pulling at 1300 RPM, my boost would be uh, over 35. Wow. Like I got lots of boost. So, but the only other problem with this truck is pulling everything is pulling fairly well, except for, I think it could be a little more snappier. Like it improved quite a bit with the muffler and the air filter, but. I think it could be well, you, a little better. You gotta find you gotta find somebody that can go into the ECM. And that's a two thousand six. So okay. Leroy, do you have any thoughts on the two thousand six? Uh, that's a two thousand and four. Oh, two thousand four, okay. I don't know if I have the tooling needed to pull the memory out of the ECM to modify it. So if I don't have the tool to pull the file out of it, I can't modify it. So. Right. Do you know anybody that could possibly help them? Um, the only thing I've heard in my past was I think people just put bigger stockpiles in it. Um, but I haven't heard anybody taking any custom files that I can think of. Okay. I see. Okay, uh, and another question. Um, I have a fellow, uh, one of my friends has a 3406B Caterpillar uh, on a cab over international in 1985. And uh, he bought this truck, it was sitting for 10 years. And he, uh, I don't know, I think he paid a couple of grand for it. Uh, just to, he, I, I think he wants to fix up this truck uh, just refurbish it but anyways he was draining the oil and there was coolant in the bottom he was thinking maybe a gallon of coolant so he's wondering wow. 
if you guys have any thoughts. Yep, I think he's got a liner packing issue. Liner packing? Yeah, packing on the liner. The O-rings on the liner. That's what I would be looking at. I'd, I would pull the oil pan down and beat how many pounds of pressure do we put into the coolant system? 20? Uh, no, it's it's 10 or 15 pounds is usually enough. Just pump it up, depending on how bad the leak is. Um, okay. You know, drop the pan, put some air pressure. Um, you know, we have a little hand pump, pump up the radiator and crawl underneath. And you know, coming between the block and the liner, it's the O-rings. If it's coming between the liners and the piston, I could be a pinhole. Maybe there's some cavitation in the liner or a crack. Either one can cause that. And if it's coming from the oil cooler. What's that? Generally, you would also get um, oil in the coolant uh, system when that happens. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. Higher than the water Maybe. pressure. Maybe I haven't checked the coolant tank also and the coolant system. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got to put pressure in and pull the pan off and see if it's coming past the liners and the blocker, the liner and the piston. So just pressurize the coolant system first and then see if it holds pressure. For no, no, no. You, gotta, you have to pull the oil pan off and then pressurize the system and get underneath and look and see where the coolant's coming from. Oh, oh, that way, right, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay, well, thanks. You're welcome. You're welcome, thanks for the call. Let's head off to Texas. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, hey, this, this is Mike with the big house. I've called you a few times. Yeah. Um, hey, Leroy, I, I appreciate what you were saying the other day about the side load of the pistons on the X-15 and how low we could run these RPMs. And um, mm-hmm. I was trying to get an actual number from you guys because Bruce has talked me into putting 328s in this truck, taking out the 342s and putting 328s. So I'd be running um, 63 at 1250 RPM in direct instead of 1350 RPM and double over. But I was trying to find a number on how low we could actually run these X-15s. Well, that's... Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. You you lost me. You said I said 328 and you could run in direct? No, 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 sir. Okay, I'll go back. A little nervous with the millions of listeners out there. You know, get a little nervous <laughs> calling in. But okay. So right now I got 342. And and we have ARI Big House. It's a big truck. So we just run like 63, and that's 1350 RPM and double over. So right. if I go if I go 228s, that'll be 1250 RPM in direct at 63. So I'll lower my RPMs by 100 all across the board, and that'll be running direct. Um, and... So, 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 so I'm just wondering as to how low I could actually run it. So, for running 61 RPM, I mean 61 miles per hour, that's going to be 1200 RPM. Is that getting to the point of running this thing too low? I, I don't think so. Um, and I, I they're think saying they're saying uh, it's uh, peak torque, isn't it? Around a thousand, thousand fifty. 
Yeah, typically. Um, they also mm-hmm. say they don't want you to run that RPM more than 30 seconds. So I, I think the thing about it is 1250 isn't a dangerous number or 1200 isn't a dangerous number, especially on light loads. Like to be to exaggerate, you can idle the engine at 1200 basically forever and it doesn't cause any engine damage. If you try to pull every mountain at 1200 RPM, then yeah, it's going to cause, you know, engine damage and shorten engine life. So is when you say, well, how low can I run it? You can run it pretty low if the, the load is light. Like if you don't have to push very hard on the pedal, yeah, you can run it pretty low. But, you know, if you're at 35 pounds of boost and you're trying to run it at 1200 RPM, probably not the greatest idea. So it's a little bit of a feel thing where if you're just cruising down a highway and it's flat and there's not a lot of load on it, yeah, you can run 1200, no problem. If you start to get into an incline, um, maybe think about downshifting. You could probably run it for a little while if it's a short hill, but if it's a long hill, yeah, you probably want to downshift. So it's for the side load depends on cylinder pressure and a lot of other factors. So what you're trying to limit as far as side thrust is lower cylinder pressure, which generally happens at lighter load. Yeah. Okay. You know, because if you let the truck automatically, if it runs it all the way down to 1100 and it's shaking and everything. So, so we have been climbing all the way down to 1200, you know, um, 1250 climbing a grade at 1250. And I don't seem to get the vibration um, right. If you're getting a vibration, it's just telling you don't be there. Now, Randy Shell that I was speaking about earlier that has the 279s with the 12 speed, he's at 1150 RPM at 62 mile per hour. And I think he's at seven and a half mile per gallon is his average. So now I'm not going to say you're going to go up a mountain at 1150, but you're cruising on the level. Yeah. yeah. So, so at, at fourteen hundred, these uh, these engines start to cut back. So, if I ideally, if you're climbing a mountain, I'd be wanting to be thirteen fifty to fourteen hundred, or right just shy of fourteen hundred. But I don't have a problem on the level being so, down there at twelve hundred. Yeah. Remember, there's no, there, there's two things on this engine to think of. The architecture isn't designed to handle a lot of load down in that low RPM range. The bottom end just won't hold up to it very well. And the other thing is the peak horsepower isn't down there anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what about when you when we're traveling west and then you got that slight incline with the head headwind all day? So you're just pulling like twenty like um fifteen pounds of boost, maybe up to twenty, like most of the day at twelve hundred and fifty RPM. You should still be okay. Yeah, that's not. There's nothing wrong with All that. Right. It, one of the things no, you're do, I, I don't you, you're doing there is you're you're also keeping more heat in that engine. If you were to downshift, bring the RPM up to say fourteen fifty, you wouldn't be keeping as much engine. It's harder on the emissions. So all these engines, we do want to find that that kind of sweet spot of where we can run them. How low can we run them? Um, and still maintain power and not be so hard on the bottom end. I, I think twelve fifty on this is just fine. Okay, perfect. 
And and after changing the gear ratio, is it complicated to get my speedometer re- recalibrated? I think I could even do that. No, that's a, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty quick parameter change. So. Okay, okay. And uh, and another thing you guys will like, I took my truck to the shop because check engine light came on, and it was a differential pressure sensor on the exhaust system. And the guy took his telescope, and he looked in there at my filter. He said, this is the cleanest filter I've ever seen. And I told him about Bruce's catalyst. He said, ah. He managed to do that with a telescope, huh? Oh, Tessascope. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Tessascope, I think, is what it is. Yeah, or whatever, so, yeah. <laughs> remote cameras. And so, okay, well, Bruce, um, you've been talking about this uh, direct drive, so I'm going to give it a try in this truck. Um, my lightweight is 44. We do a lot of deadheading. We just deadheaded 1,800 miles for a load. Now, and, and that's where that gear ratio is going to come in so beneficial to me. Just so we know what you're saying, you mean 44,000 gross vehicle weight? Uh, 44,000 is what I weigh empty. Yeah, yeah, okay. So people don't misconstrue yeah, so, so and think my... 44,000 is your light load. That That's what you're at empty and you, you pull a lot of light stuff. So you're at 342s now, right? Yes, sir. And you're at 342s. And what speed do you run? Uh, 63. 63. And what's your RPM? Uh, 1345. 1345. So if you went to 247s, that would give you about the same 1345. And our goal is to lower that RPM somewhat, correct? Yes. And if I went with the 247s, I wouldn't have to change my carriers. I'd save a lot of money. But I just wanted, if I'm going to do it, go all the way. So that's why we came up with the 228 was to get that RPM down. Yeah. Direct. Are you an 18-speed or 13? 13. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's causing it. The 247s, you would lose a little bit of RPM, but not much. Hmm. Um, well, 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 I got the RPM calculator. If I the Spicer RPM calculator, if I went with the 247s, I'd pretty much be staying the same RPM. And I, and so, and it only costs like fifty five hundred dollars to change it out to two. 47s, but it's going to cost me 8000 because i got to change the carriers. Right. So, what does your calculator say that 220 or 228s are going to give you? At what? At 63. That's, that's, well, I, I got it in here. I got it right here in front of me. Well, a sixty-three was twelve fifty RPM. Twelve fifty. I think it's worth a try. 
Yeah, that's where it seems to run real nice at that twelve fifty. And uh, I just wanted to yeah. confirm I wasn't getting down too low. You're safe and there. And I could pull a long day, like you know, like going across Nebraska on the eighty. That's just a hard pull going west all day long. Yeah, I think you're safe there. I uh, I always thought it was the wind in Nebraska, but you, how how many feet does it climb from east to west? I don't know, but it's a lot. You buy, I mean, you get up to by Laramie to go to, go to climb that grade up over the mountain there. It's it's a it's a long, slow climb, just like on the seventy going up to Denver. Yeah, same thing. And it's a headwind right. and the, and the right. grade. It just pulls hard all day long. Right. Yeah, your best bet is yeah. just turn around and go the other way. <laughs> I love going the other way, man. It's like I'm getting nine point eight miles per gallon here. See, I just shut it off and coast. There you go. <laughs> So, all right. Okay, guys. Thank you much. You're welcome. We're going to move along. Calls started. We were almost done, and the call started piling up again. And uh, Jane, I'm glad you hung out with us because this one's for you. Bob in Kentucky, it's your turn. Hi. I've got a question for Miss Jane on the see if I can get this through or it makes sense. Using the Mm -hmm. catalyst, I understand you're reducing the combustion temperature. Is it increasing, when you reduce that in combustion temperature, are you increasing the potential BTUs of energy release for oh a cleaner time. burn? Because I know you're getting a cleaner burn, you're, so you're burning more of the fuel. Right, right. Okay, this is where the use of very precise language becomes important. Um, yes. So, uh, what, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what we are doing is uh, lowering the amount of energy that has to go in to the fuel-air mix plus pressure to start the um, combustion, to start to ignite, to ignite, you yeah. So, so uh, we lower, we lower the, uh, the catalyst, the, the effect of the catalyst is to make it easier for um, that air-fuel mix to ignite and then makes it easier for the heavier hydrocarbons to burn throughout the um, the burn phase. And it's like looking at, you know, logs in your fire. It's easier to start that kindling and get it to burn than it is to get the big heavy logs started and get them to burn. Well, the catalyst catalyst lowers the amount of energy it takes to get those big logs to burn, uh, basically. Um, okay. But and, and, now, in lowering the temperature, mm-hmm. you, you still get a clean burn. Cause are, is it affecting the emissions in the burn? Because the higher you burn the fuel, the more exhaust gases you get. But to get a fully clean burn on the fuel, you have to go higher than what a piston engine can, can handle. We'd not the well, well, if we got a totally clean burn. Yeah, it's a faster burn, not necessarily a higher temperature. Okay, so okay. The, the, it's where it's where you burn that fuel. Yeah, it's, I'm sorry. It's yeah, it's the speed of the reaction. Yes, sir. That's right. Okay. And, and so, now, uh, what about if and, you put and, that into say a turbine engine that burns at a higher speed or a higher temperature? Would you get a cleaner burn on the fuel and more BTUs released? Or yeah, you, uh, we're that's right. running yeah. what forty percent of the potential energy of the diesel fuel. If that much, that's correct. Uh, but so, to get 100%, we'd have to be burning diesel like 3,000 degrees. <laughs> no, you just have to give it more time. 
and and you don't have that much time in the stroke of a piston, the power stroke of a piston, uh, or the compressor. Yeah, so the expansion stroke rather. Um, so that's where the fuel is burning when that piston is returning to top dead center. Is that right, Bruce? And and yes. so the more pressure, right? So the more pressure you create from the burning gases, the burning fuel that goes into hot gases that are expanding and putting force behind that piston. Um, that the more work you perform with each um, stroke, and and so we're getting you know better. That's so it's an it's combustion efficiency that we're improving, not necessarily temperature. But what we're lowering is the internal temperature of the reactants to get them to 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 react. So that's an internal um, temperature. It, I should not have even said it because it doesn't make sense to somebody who's not a chemist. <laughs> does, does it increase the energy release so, as far as from the fuel? Yes. Yes, I'm so glad you brought up the BTU thing. So we're converting more of the BTUs that are in the liquid fuel into heat energy. So the more efficiently you a job, the faster you do that during the stroke, um, you know, the more work you can perform before that piston stops moving. Okay. And that's where... So it's, it's, yep. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes I'm, sense. Yeah. Yep. And I'm looking at the emissions part, too. To get the cleaner mm -hmm. emissions, how do we mm -hmm. burn off more of the CO, the carbon molecules, to the CO2 that's the bad stuff, right? Or the, no, it's the NOS. Uh, right, right. So <laughs> the simplest way to, to for you to think about it is that that ten percent improvement in combustion efficiency translates to sixty percent lower soot that's produced by the engine. It also translates to about twenty percent less unburned hydrocarbon gas or vapor and about 20% less carbon monoxide, that's the poisonous gas, does a better job of converting, yeah. So those are all byproducts of the combustion reaction. And if you go to, if you completely combust the diesel fuel, what you end up with are three things. Heat, CO2, carbon dioxide, and water. Uh, but we know that there's not enough time for that to happen in in uh, in the engine. So by accelerating that combustion reaction, we do a much better job of lowering those incomplete byproducts of combustion, and therefore your emissions drop to those much 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 lower levels because you're you're just converting more of that stuff to pure heat, water, and CO2, mostly heat. Right. So that's about, the CO2 is yeah. not going to hurt anything because the plants will absorb that and put its carbon right back into the ground and release the oxygen back in the atmosphere that we need. The uh, yes, sir. I guess my that's question right. is that when I'm trying, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going along here thinking, and I'm like, I'm on this whole collector truck thing, and okay, how do we build an engine that will power that electric-driven axle? And to be honest with you, I think we're going to the wrong engine. We should be looking more toward turbine engines to generate electricity so we only have one shaft. And we're not having all that mechanical loss. And in thinking that, I was like, well, if I'm burning at a higher temperature, am I getting a cleaner burn? So you are getting a cleaner burn. 
Yep. Okay. Yes. You, so by, you definitely by are getting a much cleaner engine, I can get cleaner emissions. I just don't have the variation in my torque. And turbine engine is not good at accelerating, decelerating. But if I'm at a constant uh, running speed, they're more efficient. And if I'm just trying to generate electricity, then that would be a more efficient engine to generate electricity than a piston-driven engine. Oh, always. And it'd be um, cleaner, the, burn, cleaner burning because it burns at a higher chamber, and I can build a chamber, single chamber that burns at a higher temperature rather than having a lower temperature chamber. Can you increase the, in a single chamber like that, can you increase the burn time? Hmm, I think I'm not quite on the same page. Um, but well, the turbine, the turbine engine only has one chamber to burn. Bob, it sounds it like burns you, at a higher temperature. Sounds like you put a lot of thought into this. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think with all the different attempts at alternative fuel engines, everything from synthetic diesel we're talking about now to hydrogen, hydrogen electric, pure electric, hybrid electric, uh, natural gas, mm-hmm. uh, we've been through and still working on lots. Is anybody working on this idea? And if not, why not? Well, there are a lot of turbine generators. There's a no, I mean, uh, and a vehicle on the road. Generator I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying. Well, they did back in 1963. Chrysler built a uh, turbine why, engine. Uh, okay, why did the they stop engine, them? The turbine engine doesn't work good in a vehicle because of the acceleration and deceleration. I, I get that. But if you're but, producing electricity at a constant rate. I, you don't have to have that acceleration. I understand all the reasons why you might try it. <laughs> what I'm trying to ask is what yeah. are the reasons it's not being why? tried? It's being used in, in train engines. That, Trains are going to a turbine engine. Diesel electric has been on trains for a long, long time. It never worked on a truck on the road. It's been attempted many times. It's horribly inefficient. So again, if it was tried back in 63 and nobody continued, I'm wondering why. Why, with all this work going into alternative fuel engines, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying, why isn't somebody doing it? I don't know why. Well, that would be a good question to ask. That's like saying, why aren't we using nuclear energy? Why hasn't somebody... uh, perfected fusion energy. I mean, it's just... Well, it's not... I think it is smaller engines producing enough amperage to power electric axles. Here's the difference. We've got a 640... Fusion, we haven't ...battery on there, but we're not using 650 kilowatts to drive that axle. So how much amperage do I need to reach... Here's the difference in your... ...on that axle at any given time. Why, why haven't we perfected fusion? Because we're not smart enough yet. But every component you're talking about, we understand completely. There's nothing new to learn about any of a, a turbine engine, generating electricity. We know all of that. Why isn't somebody putting it together on a vehicle? Experience. Money. Well, then that's a good point. Until, but why you know, would we the do it? They're going to go out... So we can get cleaner burning, clean burning engines that produce the electricity that produces torque. 
and we have the range. And we're but not it, but if it's not cost effective, who's going to do it? I'm certainly not. Well, the gas engine wasn't cost effective until somebody started mass producing it. Again, with everybody working on all these technologies, I'm wondering why this one got passed over. Because nobody's tried it yet. Okay. Because the government hadn't put up $40 million to try to build a small turbine engine and produce the most electricity to push a commercial electric axle. Well, if it's going to cost $40 million, who is going to fund it then? <laughs> I'll give it to Pete to get up a tenth of a mile. I'm just saying. I'm just, the theories, I drive down the road and these theories, it's like, okay, my mind is thinking on how different things work. And if I'm going to get a cleaner burn, the biggest thing with diesel fuel or any carbon fuel is being able to burn it 100% clean. It is our highest potential energy fuel is diesel. The Right. The, the trajectory the where most potential energy in it, but we can only get 40 percent of that energy out of it. And the rest of it is waste. The, we need to be able to burn diesel more efficiently in order to get more energy out of it and drive the, the engines that we're driving. So, Jane, if, if well, we, that's we, what the catalyst uh, is, yeah, Jane, if that's we, what the catalyst is. Yeah, the catalyst is doing that. To well, an extent, mm-hmm. but it's not but, getting 100% of the potential energy well, out of look that at fuel. The, it's the okay. first step. Well, I hold, mean, hold, hey, nobody hey, thought Bob, to try the catalyst Bob. until Jane did. Hold on. <laughs> so, Jane, how much is well, left, um, Jane, if we're talking about just the combustion of the fuel itself, how much is left mm-hmm. that we're not getting to? A percent or two? Yeah, I don't um, uh, probably like less than bragged that probably. they got forty six percent. Well, hold on, because there's okay. two different things well, we have to take into account here. That's what I was trying to get to. We are doing a you, really good job of burning fuel pretty completely. There might be a little bit of efficiency yeah. left. What you're talking about, forty six percent, that's how much of the BTU is going to propelling the vehicle down the road, which is what we want. Everything right. else is lost to heat. So instead of even trying to go down the road of a more efficient engine to get a little bit left, what about fixing drivetrains where we have all that loss? There's much more potential. That's there. right. That's right. So you're losing heat through conduction. And, and anyway, just, you know, a lot of the efficiency losses are mechanical and through the heat loss of heat after it has been converted to hot gases for complete combustion. So it's really hard to separate out the pure chemical combustion effect from those other mechanical and thermal losses. Right. And so I don't have a straight answer for you. If you, well, there is a method called, it's called uh, calorimetry and, and you put in the fuel charge into a insulated container and you ignite it. And uh, that's how they measure how much BTU content is in fuel. Um, but that's just the pure combustion. And so it's uh, what happens in the in an internal combustion engine and, and for a turbine engine, for that matter, it's just a completely different story because it's not a closed system. It's not a thermally insulated system. It's got mechanical things attached to it that are t- absorbing some of that, that uh, force. And so it just depends on where you measure it, how you measure it, and... Um, 
then do, you know, make your comparisons based on that. There you go. All right. We have a lot of information today, but we've got to move along. We've got about 10 minutes to wrap up two more calls. I'm going to go to Mississippi. Mark, welcome to the program. Hey, good morning or good afternoon, y'all. Hey, a uh, couple of things, Kevin. First thing, uh, I put, uh, I got this uh, 2018 Western Star. Uh, it's got the Troy D13 car hauler. Uh, 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 not deal. Um, um, uh, yeah. uh, I changed the lights out and I put the uh, LED lights in and I'm going to call them ELD lights. So the LED lights, I put those in and so it's got those, it's got four, light, four lights up there that's uh, uh, one side's got high and low, one side high and then there's a supposedly a daytime running light in there. So okay, so got them in there and they run and all like that but when you turn the uh, uh, just release the brakes and turn the lights off and the, the daytime running lights come on, they flicker. And it's like the little green light that's on the dash that lets you know they're on, it flickers too. So I was talking to Paul about that and he goes, I don't know, call, call the power hour and ask them. So I'm asking y'all. Why do so, they flicker? So you're saying, uh, what, what are these lights again? You're saying the, the headlights, right? The headlights, the uh, LED headlights. You change them from regular regular bulbs to uh, LED, and uh, the daytime running lights flicker. Like all the time, or just when you first kick them on? Well, no, they just they, they keep flickering. Like right now, I got the headlights on, and I'll turn it off, and it's like the little the little green lights flickering. And if you go outside and look at them, you know, set your set your trailer brake, leave the brake, uh, you know, release the brakes, like you're going down the road or whatever. Get out to look at them; they're flickering. Well, I mean, the, the first obvious thing is just make sure that your connections are good. And the second well, they are good because the, light, the, the, the lights work at night. They work. So, right. Yeah. Right. But it's just the daytime so, running lights flicker. Yeah. So the two things is what would make them flicker, if we just look at it big picture-wise, is either uh, either connection or the voltage to turn the LED on is at, a, at its threshold. So if it takes like a small LED, for instance, takes like 3.2 volts to turn on. At 3.1 volts, the LED turns off. So if you're right there at that threshold for the LEDs to be on, then okay. you could be lights on, lights off, lights on, lights off. Like if you're just right at okay. the minimum voltage it takes for them to be on. So what would cause... Does daytime running there? lights take less or more or whatever? Then? It, it just depends on how the, the, the headlight is, is designed and, and things. They're, they're so maximum. Maximums or whatever, you know, that brand. So, I don't yeah. So, my thought is you have something because all you're getting to the, the headlights is just probably a 12 volt, right? And then everything is built into the headlights. Okay. Right. So, so yeah, you're getting 12 volts to your headlights, your daytime running lights. And then you have a circuit board in there that converts the 12 volts to something that the LEDs can use. So, if you're getting a flicker, you got something going on inside the headlights. Okay. Well, it's only it's only for the the daytime running light section. But the, the nighttime they work fine. And once you get them adjusted, it's like I can actually see. So, with the other headlights that were in there, it's like especially the rain. It's like it just it was horrible. So I don't know. I just it's just 
I mean, it's something I guess I can live with or whatever. But uh, anyway, it's just thought Dr. Mike could get some information or whatever. Also, yeah. uh, I don't know if you saw this, Kevin, but uh, did you see that tweet by Elon Musk about the, the Tesla truck uh, did 80,000 pounds, 500 miles in the test over the weekend or whatever? I did see so, that, but I couldn't I, find I any details. Well, he just said it, so it's like, you know, I don't know, anyway. So I, 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 I screenshotted it and I posted it on two Facebook, your group and another group on Facebook. And when I posted that, they're still losing their mind. People lost their minds over that. Well, here's the thing. Interesting observation. Yeah, maybe it was on level ground with, you know, 70 degree temperatures. And, you know, if we can achieve 500 miles in those conditions, that's awesome. Does that mean we might only get 250 trying to get through the Rockies when it's 10 degrees outside? I mean, it's just right. one test. I mean, you know, it's, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a long ways to go with all these batteries and all like that. But, but just yeah, but you're right. People just that, yeah. lose their mind when you post anything about this even working a little. Uh, EV vehicles or any, any yeah. cars or whatever, people just lose their minds. So yeah. It's like, you, you know, yeah. part of the I, problem. I haul them and it's like, I find it fascinating. I, I do too. I, a part of the problem is we've politicized this so much. And I don't, you know, it's the whole green thing. And, and I wish we could just separate electric vehicles from that and just look at electric vehicles for their advantages. Now, are we all going to be able to drive one? Not anytime soon. No. But we'll get there. There'll be more electric. I've said this before, yeah. and I, I don't think anybody can dispute this. From now on, there will be more electric vehicles on the road every year. It's never, I don't think it's ever going to go backwards. We'll just have more and more of them every year. We'll run into all kinds of problems, and we'll, well man- hopefully find ways to solve the problems. No. The, the manufacturers have now committed to it, so they're throwing money into it, and yeah. so it's like they've all got the program or whatever. And mo- most of them, most of them are behind, and so they're they're putting out. There's, you know, I mean, Tesla's like leading the way, but they've got like the European manufacturers are putting theirs out. Theirs are extremely heavy. They're like six thousand pounds to be a right. Yeah, the, you know, uh, Mercedes, they're, BMW. They're actually they're they're hundred thirty one thousand dollars a vehicle, and then then you got. The other ones, you know, the the Americans coming along out of Detroit with what they're trying to produce, and it's like well, here's, they're, they're behind the curve. Yeah, and here's what we can expect. You know, go back to the emissions fiasco. We rushed it because of government mandates, and we made a mess out of diesel engines for over a decade, almost two decades, and we're finally starting to fix that. But we rushed it because the government pushed it. The government's pushing electric vehicles. And the one thing I can tell people, there's going to be a bunch of junk. And you won't know it till after you bought it. I would just be very, very careful about the electric vehicle you buy. We're going to find out some of them are just junk. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just just thrown out there and it's like... They're seeing what sticks, and and I mean, it's just it's a mess right now. But I mean, that's I yeah. guess it's considered research. I guess, yeah. Well. You know, but yeah. Like, it, instead, it, instead of it, everybody, instead of everybody, you know, 
getting on board with the technology. I mean, look at the cell phones. I made this comment in one of those. I said, I'm still waiting for a cell phone that'll hold you charged like it's supposed to. It's like, I just bought a new iPod. It's like, yeah. I don't see much improvement in the damn battery in it. You so, never get you the know, battery the life out of, out of any of these things they claim. Hell, my laptop's supposed to go like 11 uh, hours now on a battery charge. I'm lucky if I get half that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you're in a car. You're looking at a car. I remember when cell phones first come out, you had a battery the size of a lunchbox. Uh, well, I had you know, one of those. It looked, like a, last 30 minutes. looked like an Army field radio. And I, I killed yeah. a battery in about two months because I was charging it too often. Yeah. Yeah, we have a long way to go. We still have to charge you. The, 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 real, yeah, so, anyway. the real key to all of this isn't the vehicle. It's the battery. When we get a solid yeah, state you said battery, that a million times. everything will change. Yeah. Yeah, that's the battery. The battery technology. That's the that's whole everything. key. Yep. Yep. So, and, and there are a lot of companies working on it. So we'll see. Um, we got to get through a couple more calls. Uh, Angie, yes. Stop taking calls. Um, we got to wrap this up and let everybody get on with their day. But I do want to get to the calls we have. Travis, it's your turn. Hey guys. Um, so Bruce is uh, is up to up to speed on my situation. About three weeks ago, I was going down a nine percent grade in Wyoming. Uh, with my ISX, and I put it in six low instead of six high going down this grade, and I sent the RPMs up to around 2,300. And instead of upshifting and rolling it out, I just left the jakes on and, and started feathering the brakes to bring it down, but I was well over 2,000 RPM for at least 30 seconds. And when I got to the bottom of the hill and leveled out a couple miles later, I threw a rod out the side of the block. Yikes. And what you guys were talking about earlier, yeah, it, it, it was quite the mess. So I was, my oil samples have been fairly clean um, this whole year. Um, but what you guys were just saying earlier about uh, some areas of oil in the engine being significantly hotter than what is showing from the temp sensor, I'm wondering if that high RPM for that long of a period could really have fried a rod bearing to the point where it spun the bearing and, and kicked the rod. Do you, do you see that as a reasonable explanation as to what happened to my engine? Bruce? I, mean, I don't. Yeah, I, didn't I, I don't think, think so that's... Well, it's, it's just hard to say without, you know, looking at it and seeing... Well, what the problem is when you have a failure like that, there's so much damage... You can't see where it started. That's true. Yeah. You know, and, and if you have a noisy engine and you found um, a crank starting to break or a bolt starting to break, you can see where the break occurred. Um, but when you have a spun bearing or a rod through the side of a block, there's so much damage, you don't even know what, what started first. There's just no way it, of finding it, unfortunately. You right. know, we, it seems logical to I, say we had this extreme event happen, and then right after this extreme event, we had this failure. And it may have had something to do with yeah. it. But on the other hand, I'll give you the other extreme. The last engine I threw a rod on, the Series 60, and I was bobtailing, and I drove it down the street about a half a mile, 
and I was on my way back and I was decelerating and coasting and the rod went through the block. Nothing extreme whatsoever. And I mean, and you have to think yeah. if it was that detrimental to the engine to run the jakes at 2300 RPM or 2000 or something or 2000 plus, let's just say, I would find it hard to believe that Cummins wouldn't disable the engine brake above a certain RPM. Yeah. If it was that detrimental they to the can engine. disable it at an idle. They can disable it whenever they want right. to. So right. So they can do it at yeah. hey, anything above 200 shut it off. It's uh, not safe. I mean, if, if that was true, I imagine you're not the only person that has ran the engine brake to 2000 RPM plus by accident or on purpose. And I feel like we would just hear more of it. Now, it, it was in your case, is that why it happened? Could be. Maybe it was um, the final straw. Very, I why. Yeah. So 30,000 miles before this happened, had the camshaft and rockers replaced. And Bruce, I sent those pictures of the camshaft to your Facebook messenger. You can see how, how bad it was. Um, replaced camshaft and rockers and the oil 30,000 miles ago. That oil sample, when they pulled the, the uh, camshaft out, I'll just tell you a few things here. Copper was at 8, lead was at 23, and silicon was at 5. Nothing when in there. That shaft was. Here's the other problem that I can tell you about oil analysis and um, component failures, catastrophic failures. We never see them coming. I have reviewed so many oil That's samples. That's another thing I was going to mention that I know you've said before. Right. Of engines that have failed like this, I go back through them. Is there anything we could find in there that would point to this? There's nothing. Yeah. I, I remember when I worked at Kenworth, a, uh, an ISX got towed in with 1,200 miles on it. It literally was put into service that week, and it seized a wrist pin and cracked the block all the way down both sides to the front cover and grenaded the whole thing. Yeah, what causes that? You know, it, that's just... Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of over it. I'm getting things put together to put another engine in it. I was just kind of curious to see if you guys had any thoughts as to what, you know, it's hard to pinpoint catastrophic failures. It you is. Know. And maybe that, that event was the final straw. Something had been going on right. a long time. Something was it, about to fail. It may have failed two months after that under normal conditions. Maybe the extreme conditions just pushed mm -hmm. it over the edge. Even uh, even after I I got my RPMs back down and leveled out for a few miles, I heard a rod knock, and I looked at my oil pressure, and my oil temperature, and all that, and everything was normal. And before I could slow down to stop and and assess it, is when it kicked the rod out the side of the block. Yeah. So I, I kind of had a gut feeling right when I heard that noise, like I need to stop. I looked at my gauges, and then it threw the rod. And on the other end, my Mine gave no warning, no noise, no nothing, one big bang, and it was over. Gotcha. And that, that reminds me of, uh, like, sort of a related topic with engine protection. A lot of times, there's like a 30-second delay by the time the ECM sees no oil pressure until it shuts down. So some people argue, like, I don't want engine protection because, in this case, if I had an event where I just lost all my oil pressure, the ECM's going to let it go for 30 seconds. So 
So you might cause a lot of damage or you might just kick the rod in at a time. So yeah, could be. All right. One more call. Eric, you get the final word today. Yes. I'm calling about the guy with the flickering headlights. I didn't catch what kind of truck he was driving, but on a Kenworth, if you change from incandescent headlights to LED or whatever, you have to go into, you have to use ESA, go into the body control module and switch it. It's actually in there where you'll switch the headlight from incandescent, LED, etc. If you don't, the headlights act goofy. Interesting. I know from it's personal a, experience. It's amazing how complicated lighting has become on vehicles. Well, I think that that covers, well, when Kenworth went multiplex. Okay. So you're probably 05, 05 to current. That's a, I don't know about the plastic trucks. I think that's what you what said. The, what's that? I think he had a Freightliner, if I'm I don't correct. remember oh, if I'm he not said sure, or not. Yeah, that's good, I, good I info, I jumped though. back in my truck. I jumped yeah, back in my good. truck as he was talking about flickering lights, and I never caught what kind of truck it was. But if he changed that and he sees that problem, he's going to probably want somebody that could communicate with his body control module hey. and see. You know, that reminds me of something else. I I, yeah, that's good information. Um, Leroy... You know, one of the things I've noticed on inverters, we're putting bigger and bigger inverters in trucks. Um, many of those have a switch to change the type of battery you're using. I wonder how many people know that and actually set those properly. Yeah, that is true. Uh, that is true, yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. I actually have a big bunk that we bought, which is a 660, and factory headlights of 660s, you can see better with candles. <laughs> we, we we actually That's bought bad. it at a at a, a, a copart auction a 2014 truck it was a theft recovery and you couldn't drive it at night the head the factory headlights were so bad but uh i guess a combination from sandblasting or whatever Got but it. uh anyhow all right i Good. bought a computer with isa in it and learned a lot about there you go Good stuff. All right. We have learned a lot today, but we have got to move on. Um, Jane, anything you want to wrap up with today? Oh, hi, Kevin. Just wanted to thank you very much for inviting me back to the show. It's been wonderful. And um, I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. I hope so, too. We, uh, we got into some pretty deep topics today, but we learned a lot. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yes, yes, you're welcome. Me too. I learned a tremendous amount. I think it's, you know, um, synergy of minds and experience. And there you I go. I hope I brought something to the show. Good yeah. stuff. Alrighty. Um, and have a happy holiday. Yes. All right. We will talk to you again soon. Um, hey, Bruce, you know, you seem to be the. Uh, Bruce, stop. Oh, oh, Bruce, Bruce had is, to leave. Yeah, I was just going to. I just looked. Bruce is gone. All right. Um, Either one of you guys want to close with anything? No. Nope. I think we said enough today. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I know. It's been pretty deep. Long good good show though. We will uh we'll do it again soon. We will see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. I think we've got Forrest Pritchard with us tomorrow. We'll be talking about soil 
and regenerative farming and anything else you want to talk about health-wise. So we will see you then. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.